Okay, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mojo DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayer. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 108. I am your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Donovan. This is Jay. And this is Stella. And we are bringing you the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the weeks of January 6th through January 19th. Uh, we have a total of four books to cover. Um, we have a small amount of news to cover. Uh, we are hoping to get in a DCU spotlight um, and suggest some books since we haven't had one of those uh, segments in a while. Uh, of course, we have Bat Books for Beginners, and we also have a special announcement that we will hold towards the end of the podcast. So make sure you stay tuned till the end. Um, so with that, let's get into news. As I said, not very much news to go over. Um, if you checked over on the website, we have an article up there um, talking about some of the top-selling comics for the year of 2012. Um, as far as the Batman books go... Um, Court of Owls was on the list um, as uh, Batman, the hardcover volume of the Court of Owls was number eight on the list. Batman Earth One was number three on the list. As far as uh, individual comics, uh, nothing from DC was in the top ten. Um, so there's some charts up there. You can take a look. Um, DC is almost pretty evenly split with uh, Marvel as far as unit share and dollar share go. It's pretty close um, it's only a difference of about 3% for market share and less than 1% of actual unit market share. So that means DC is almost selling just as many comics as Marvel Comics, um, which I would assume would mean that uh, DC is selling more issues of each comic since Marvel has... I, my understanding is that Marvel actually is releasing more than 50 comics a month anyway, so... There's not really anything really to talk about if you want to check out the charts and the actual percentages as well as what was actually part of the, or what was the number one graphic novel of the year, you can head over to the website. What we do want to talk about is the solicitations that were released for April. Now, there wasn't um, any cancellations that were announced, so we go at least one more month without any cancellations um, as far as the entire DC Universe goes. But uh, we do have a couple of different creator changes, including some that throw some wrenches into my ultimate Red Robin plan. So uh, before we talk about the Red Robin issues, uh, let's talk about Birds of Prey. Stella? So Birds of Prey writer, what was it, Jim Zub? Originally, he was announced to be the new writer that was uh, going to be following Dwayne Swarzynski. And then, and he even had some interviews, which, okay, most people actually have interviews. And he's talking about his creative direction and everything. Then all of a sudden, we find out Chrissy Marks is actually going to be taking over as a new writer. And she's been on the book uh, Sword of Sorcery. And so this kind of threw me for a loop because I thought to myself, well, 
we kind of had a writer already cemented and now there may have been some sort of creative differences or who knows what. And now we have a new writer. So it's already topsy-turvy once Dwayne Swierzynski's leaving. I'm a little concerned. I know that Chrissy Marks has been getting really good reviews on sort of sorcery, uh, but it just worries me when there's a writer and he has interviews and talks about his plans and then he's sort of taken off the book and replaced by a new writer. And again, we just have this whole, no one is safe over there in the DC offices if this is what happens. There's just no consistency. I just don't understand if they're, if they had a problem with what Zub was doing, if they, why couldn't they have just told him, actually, we don't like this. Can you fix it? Rather than just, um, either knocking him off or him leaving. I, I don't know why you, they can't just work it out, sort of. Uh, but I guess we'll see now what it's going to be like with this new writer and what she's going to do with the book. Okay, so then some of the other things that happened. Um, we talked about this last time, how there was a rumor out there that James Tinian was going to be taking over Red Hood and the Outlaws. Well, that turns out to be true, and he will take over Red Hood and the Outlaws from Scott Lobdell with issue number 19. Um the artist will be Miko Swayan. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but he is new to the Bat Books as he hasn't really, he hasn't worked on any of the other Bat Books, uh, currently. Um, so he will be the artist, which means, uh, Timothy Green is no longer on that book. Um, some of the other artist changes. The surprise was, um, Eddie Barrows leaving Nightwing. Aww. And going over to Team Titans to work Ooh. with Scott Lobdell. And where does Brett Booth go? Well, Brett Booth is actually working on Nightwing now with Kyle Higgins. So what's kind of interesting about this is obviously my the wrench I was referring to is the fact that Brett Booth, who I assumed was going to be working on the Red Robin series that has yet to be announced, um, he is actually going to be working on Nightwing. So that's... Uh, I guess one strike for my, my theory for the Red Robin book, but it still also doesn't explain why exactly Brett Booth was having Twitter conversations with Fabian Nasiza. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what comes of that. Um, the other, as far, as far as creator changes, those are, that's pretty much the majority of it. Uh, Gail Simone is in fact, uh, solicited to be on number 19 and, uh, other than that, there's not really any major creator changes. Um, we have uh, Greg Pulo returns in for Batman number 19 um, after he takes a month off, and Andy Clark is filling in for him for 18. But besides that, there is no more creator changes. Now, the one thing that uh, I do want to talk about is uh, the, the one solicitation that kind of peaked I guess I wouldn't necessarily say piqued my interest, but got me questioning the future would be Batwing. And that's because the actual solicitation for Batwing number 19 reads, Batwing quits, and what new member of the Batman family is ready to take his place? And the cover shows Batman standing over a bloodied, crawling, trying to crawl away from Batman, Batwing. So, um, who knows what will happen with Batwing. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe it'll end with issue number 20, or maybe they're just, you know, trying to figure out a way to wrap it up. I don't know. Now, quite honestly, all the solicitations for all these books are pretty crappy. They've been pretty crappy since the New 52 started, and in some cases, we've also realized that the solicitation description, in fact, doesn't even match the actual contents of the actual book. 
So um, who knows what will actually happen of this. We'll just have to wait and see. What if Batman beat him up for some reason and Batwing quits out of frustration? He's like, there's no job security in, the, in this work, so I quit. Well, you figure Batman, if Batman incorporated Zendian, he can't last forever. He really just, he just can't. I mean, right. He, I mean, Azrael lasted way longer than it should have. And as much as I would love to believe that, um, you know, there's characters out there who could stand on their own. I don't foresee it actually being able to happen. I don't see Talon being able to last for multiple years. Um, you know, 20, 20 issues is a decent run for a series. There's been issues that have even, or been series that have even made it that far. So that's a pretty decent run as far as being able to, or as like a chance. And the fact that there's been multiple, multiple artist changes with that title, as well as two writer changes. Uh, well, I guess one writer change and then Fabian, the size that took over, so one change, but two different writers. And by reading the current Batwing, uh, Fabian, the size is trying to kind of, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, he's trying to pick up the pieces of what Judd Winnick has left, but it's not really coming across as crystal flowing as, as, as it, sh- as it really should be, but, that's part of the reason, that's part of what happens when a writer, you know, leaves with all these crazy plot holes. Just from that um, solicitation, it would be interesting if they turned Batwing into a, like a Batman Incorporated anthology title. They'd obviously have to change the title of the book. But uh, like you were saying, Dustin, the solicitations can be so vague and misleading nowadays that I, I don't buy into it. I have no idea what this is going to turn into. <laughs> It'd be cool if they did, if Batman Incorporated somehow did stand. I mean, the other problem is, in Batman Incorporated, we have a number of these allies that are part of Batman Incorporated dying left and right, so it's, again, it's... <laughs> we even have a different Batwing in that title for some yeah, reason. Yeah, so I mean, like, <laughs> there's there's a lot of problems with that, but it would be kind of cool if they had a series, you know, Knight and Squire had that mini-series. It wouldn't have been cool if they would have had at the time when they first was, you know, in the process of formulating Batman Incorporated, it would have been cool if they came up with like an idea where they had uh, a series that was just that was called maybe Batman Incorporated, but not Batman Incorporated, like not about Batman's running Batman Incorporated, but like about all of the different characters. And that would have been an outlet to tell, you know, maybe three issue story arcs about some of these characters and have a story that focuses on Night and Squire, or have a story that focuses on the Outsiders who. You know, pretty much their series ended very abruptly and they barely had any part of uh, coming into Batman Incorporated other than that being told, hey, you're part of Batman Incorporated and having that one issue when Batman comes back from being dead, uh, which was uh, Bruce Wayne, The Road Home. Um, so it would be, it, that would have been a cool idea and it would have gave them the opportunity to have writers come on and just do three issues and have artists only do three issues. That would have been a great idea for them to be able to do that and still build within the mythos of what Graham Morrison's trying to do with Batman Incorporated instead of what they're doing now, which is basically Batman Incorporated is the odd book out that has nothing to do with everything else. Call it Bat Wings as a plural title. That would imply that everyone is Batwing, though. Yeah, I suppose it would. I'll stick with Batman Incorporated if anybody at DC is listening. You know, I'm available with all kinds of ideas if you want to put me on the payroll. 
All right. So then, uh, besides that, that's pretty much all the news for solicitations. The only other thing we've got is on, uh, January 18th, DC announced the new creator lineup for Legends of the Dark Knights, which is the digital first, uh, series that releases every Thursday. And the series are obviously written, or the series is obviously in a chapter form. Um, so, uh, Raphael Albuquerque is working on a one that's actually already released, released on January 17th. The one that is currently being released is written by Peter Milligan, who has written Batman stuff in the past, and art by Ricardo Burciello. And that is a three, that is a four parts, uh, chapter, or four part story. Uh, February 21st starts a three part series. Uh, written by Josh Williamson and art by Wes Craig. So that is everything that they've announced as of right now. So, uh, two different stories broken up over seven different parts over the next seven weeks. So that runs through March 7th. So expect early March to see another lineup as far as what's coming out. All right. So with that, that is all of our news. With that, we are going to get straight into our comic book reviews. And we will start with Detective Comics number 16. Hmm? A team of Gotham's greatest villains to do the job we haven't been able to do alone. Clip the bat jerk's wings permanently. Now that is a blueprint for success. Batman Detective Comics number 16, written by John Lehman, with art by Jason Fabok. The issue opens with, citizen, with the citizens of Gotham causing havoc all over the city in the Joker's wake, including Ogilvy, who is disguising his actions as Joker's attacks. We cut to Batman, who's taking care of one of the gangs of Joker wannabes. He questions them on the League of Smiles, but they know nothing. Batman goes back to the Batcave, and through his research, we learn the four members of the League of Smiles, who we then cut to as they enter a youth center. The group round up the hostages, but it is clear the youngest member of the League, Rodney Spurman, is having second thoughts about his role in the gang. Meanwhile, Batman is all over Gotham taking out the gangs when he intercepts a police call about a fire at the youth center. Arriving at the scene, Batman crashes through the window and sees Rodney cowering in the corner. Rodney says that he let the hostages go. We learn that he was just looking for acceptance but couldn't go through the League of Smiles' plans. And when even the League rejected him, he took a shard of glass and cut off the lower half of his face. Ugh. As Rodney is put into an ambulance, he warns Batman again of the League of Smiles, but also of the Merrymaker. We then cut to the League, standing in front of the Merrymaker, who says the knight is still young. And then we go to the backup also written by John Lehman with art by Andy Clark. And this is going to be very reminiscent of uh, that Batwoman arc, but the solution. This is what we're going to do, says Ogilvy, as he melts a smile into someone's face. Blame it on the Joker. The problem, earlier this week. Ogilvy is outside of the church where the Joker massacred Gotham's, city, uh, Gotham's crime families. The problem intensifies as the crime families retaliate to the murders and begin an all-out war in Gotham. We then cut to Ogilvy, talking to the small group of supervillains from Tony Daniels' run, who are questioning Ogilvy on what they should do, where the Penguin is, and why they should trust Ogilvy. 
And we get some interesting backstory on Ogilvy, how he got to be where he is in Penguin's organisation. But one character is particularly unhappy with Ogilvy's uh, promotion to Emperor Penguin. And in a circular narrative, or as Stella would say, a ring composition, yeah, we see the beginning as the end with the same man getting his face lasered off. And in fear of this, the group of supervillains side with Ogilvy. The end. Yeah, the main thing is, did anyone else feel that this was completely pointless? <laughs> now that uh, you mention it. I have to say that the, my, my, my thought on this was the reason why it felt so pointless was because, uh, in my opinion, I almost feel as if everything that John Lehman's been doing has been going a specific path. And, you know, we remember the last issue of Detective Comics where it was that weird, you know, random two-page thing where the Penguin just happens to be there with the Joker standing in the corner explaining where he's going. And we said to, at the time, well, why exactly is this part of Death of the Family if that's all there is? And then we get this issue, and it really just felt like, okay, so the reality is we had to see some sort of Bruce Wayne, Batman story tie in with De- Death of the Family in Detective Comics, because Detective Comics is one of the top-selling Batman books. So it had to tie in. So in my opinion, it was almost as if he was pressured into tying in, and that's why it was what it was. And he was trying to figure out a way to uh, at least connect to his his ongoing story, which was the whole backup. That was pretty much his story carrying on was the backup. And that if you look at nothing but the backup, the, it makes perfect sense as far as the connections between his his over you know his his overarching story compared to um, you know this. But you look at the first part of the book, and it's like, wait a second. Everything that's happening, every single book says Batman has no time to be messing with random henchmen or random uh, cultists that are out there, you know, pre, you know, doing crime for the name of the Joker. It's just like, and yet has nothing to do with it. Um, pointless doesn't automatically equal bad, though. Um, I agree. This was, you know, sort of. I has I don't want to say a waste, but it was sort of like an issue that we didn't need to read. Um, I don't know. John John Lehman's still pretty good, so I, I was I was moderately entertained throughout. But yeah, it it did feel like a total shoehorning in of you know to the Joker, of course, by this issue. And it, man, <laughs> I I think I think both this and Batman Inc are doing fine without calling attention to the death of the family. So I think if DC was kind of concerned about that in terms of, I'm not sure how soon they see the sales sale figures, but like last month where they had their um, uh, Clayface story when Death of the Family had already started. I think they can just pretend to rely on, I guess this was commissioned beforehand, but it was, I'm saying it was okay for what it was, but it does hamper from the fact that it feels very much like an editorial mandate. Yeah. I, I really wanted to like this because uh, I, I like John Lehman, but I, I couldn't get over the fact that just it felt really, Unnecessary. It didn't. I. I wasn't particularly entertained. I was irritated by the Twitter <laughs> references. Um, Where were they? Where were they? They were so in your face. I can't believe you missed them. Well, I'm not on Twitter, so I wouldn't catch them. No, as in, out. Robin out and out was just like, oh, what are you gonna do? Tweet the bad guys? Uh, like, really? Uh, really? Watch so, um, I think that's. 
partly to do with I like keeping things in a way kind of timeless. I know Batman has a lot of weird gadgets like uh, EMP guns and stuff, so you can't always do that. But having the uh, like the hot flavor of the day or whatever the phrase I'm looking for is in the books, it often dates them badly. Um, but I, I think that the worst part about it is like how good the backup was in comparison because that's, I feel like that's the story that John Lehman came on the book to tell is this Emperor Penguin storyline. And that was really just forced into the back. But, um, other than I think, I think Andy Clark, it looked like his art wasn't quite as detailed as usual, but I still felt the backup was the best part of the book. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I don't want to make it sound like I didn't, I didn't like what John Lehman did. I just felt as if that's not what he wants to be doing. And he's doing it because that's what he was told to do. Otherwise, who knows? Maybe he'd be in the same spot as Jim Zub and Gail Simone, or former Gail Simone, or some of these other people who have been recently removed quite quickly from some of these books. I mean, like, I'm, I'm not trying to say that, like, he didn't, he didn't tell a good story. It's just the problem is, because it ties in with Death of the Family, it's a horrible placement. Like, this would have made sense if it was a month ago and not this month. But, you know, Detective Comics is happening one week before Batman. And again, this is, this is nothing that the writers themselves can control. This is editorial. The, the writers themselves cannot control when the issue gets released. That's editorial. So the fact of the matter is that because this is releasing between Batman number 15 and number 16, and number 15 has Batman going into Arkham Asylum, and number 16 has him inside of Arkham Asylum, and Detective Comics is somehow coming out in the middle of that, how does that make any sense where it's supposed to somehow play into, you know, play into what's happening with Death of the Family? I mean, it's the same thing that we complained about when we said Batgirl randomly shows up in Teen Titans, you know, to tell them, oh, well, here's a map of where you need to go while her whole thing inside of Batgirl is happening. It's like, I I understand that, you know, they want to try to have some kind of cohesion and stuff like that, but you either do full-on cohesion where you can read everything and it makes sense, you know, fluently, or you don't have these characters who are involved in a very serious, specific, large thing in their own book going off and doing things in a different book. And, you know, the thing is, Detective Comics is is a Batman story, is a Bruce Wayne book, that's what it is, but I just think maybe this would have been better if they didn't deal with Death of the Family, similar to what Greg Hurwitz is doing with Batman the Dark Knight. And I honestly think because John Lehman came onto the book when he did, it was basically told by editorial guess what, you're coming in, this is what we need you to do for the issue that's coming out around here. And that's that, and that's why this has happened. I kind of dug it in the sense that, like, because the Joker is kind of running rampant, the the like the League of Smiles and all that, it kind of reminded me of uh, the Jokers from the Batman Beyond book slash show, and that, like, his Joker's mania is sort of uh, uh, resonating towards Gotham. I don't think that's really what the story was about, but I kind of enjoyed it on that sort of, like, thematic sense. But yeah, it does feel like like editorial just kind of pushed John Lehman out into a into a a track and just told him to do certain things he was as it comes to doing. And I think that like again, we complain about editorial a lot, and it's justified because, like you guys have said, you know, Batman is in between trips at Ar- Arkham Asylum. You know, Batgirl is you know in between marriages, 
and um, these characters are you know, are being put in these other books, like almost for no reason. I mean, do we really even need Batgirl in those other books? Do we need Batman? I mean, we could probably have had this story without Batman, or you know, have him with, with um, not with Damien, obviously, because Damien's you know getting bugs shoved down, shoved down his throat. But uh, it's sort of like uh, this would be an interesting time to call away to other other people, um, other characters like. Well, no, not Alfred or Gordon. They're they're in trouble. Um, but maybe just make it like make the expand the backstory, make it more about Ogilvy. While while there's all, all this Joker crap's going on, you know, Ogilvy has a chance to sort of you know put forth his power play. All right, so Detective Comics number sixteen. I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. I agree. I will give Detective Comics three out of five batterings. I concur. <laughs> three out of five batterings. Uh, I give it a bit of a higher score, 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Alright, so that is going to give Detective Comics number 16 a total of 3 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman and Robin number 16. Eventually he saw the need for a partner in crime fighting, a squire who would help him in his caped crusade. Thus was born... Robin... Together they served as an ever-vigilant reminder to the Gotham underworld that no criminal was safe as long as the dynamic duo was on the job. Batman and Robin number 16, written by Peter Tomasi, illustrated by Patrick Gleason, as always. Robin fights uh, a Jokerized version of Batman. He uh, uh, thinks the Joker killed him, but realizes it's not Batman. Uh, it's knocked out. And in the issue, Joker has the same image that he has in all the other satellite books. Next issue continued in Batman number 17. Oh, yeah, that, this is a 10-second summary. Come on. <laughs> I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying, like, you know, that's exactly what it was. It was just, you know, Damien fighting um, not Batman while the Joker says bad jokes in the background. And I like this issue. Generally, um, it was less, like, abrasive than I thought was the last issue. I thought the last issue was, this issue was just kind of trying too hard. But I've, I've gone on and ran about that. Uh, and because it's so basic, I only have a very basic question, which can't take much time. But really, I mean, well, let me, let me at first talk about like, like how this issue holds up. And I think it holds up well. I mean, art's still good generally, but fight issues rely on the skill of the artist and the choreography of the fight to really be good. That's sort of like what carried, uh, <laughs> that's what carried Cassandra Kane's title during the Puckett run because She'd always be, like, those are really simple stories, but she'd always be fighting in ways which, uh, Damien Scott really illustrated to be visually interesting. I think Patrick Gleason's a good artist, but when he draws fight scenes, it's always sort of like the, like the needless full page splashes and like sort of like the horror of the violence, not really in the thrill of the fight itself. So, I mean, this issue was okay. It wasn't bad. It wasn't fantastic. It was just Damien fighting. And because he's basically fighting a zombie, it, it can only be so much, um, I, I was sort of interested in how Damien was written in this. He was, you know, in terms of this title, because we've seen him, we've seen his personality, different aspects of his personality in Batman Inc. We've seen it in, uh, uh, The Dark Knights. And in this issue, he's a little bit more of like the kid Damien, which, which we like to see, not so much like the arrogant ass. And, um, I thought the fight between him and Zombie Batman, or Zombie Not Batman, was interesting in that, like, he, he was trying to convince who he thought was Batman to, you know, take over the Joker's toxin to fight with him, and then he says, no, I'll kill you, and then he says, well, no, I won't kill you. And I thought that was kind of interesting. What did you guys think? How did you think about his characterization in the, in how it was done that way? I think that the... I I, I think the characterization was, was spot on, and it shows 
tremendous growth from, um, you know, issue number one of Batman and Robin as far as the relationship between Bruce and Damien. The fact that Damien was willing to, you know, allow Batman to kill him instead of him to, him having to kill Batman. Um, shows that, you know, he generally was concerned. Obviously that, you know, backfired on the Joker because the Joker was not expecting that. Um, but I mean, the only thing I have to, the only complaint I have is that it seems to me as if this isn't the first issue that this has happened in, but it seems to me that Damien is very, very open about Batman being his father. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that not everybody and their brothers can be able to hear Damien say these weird things like, Oh, father, I'm sorry, or father this, or father that. But the thing is, like, he whispers into this guy's ear that, you know, that, you know, Damien is in fact his son. He doesn't, I mean, like, I'm trying to figure out at some point, okay, is he going to figure out that this guy is an imposter? Because obviously this wasn't the real Batman to the reader, for the majority of the time, I never thought once that it was the real Batman. I mean, it just wasn't written that way. It was written as, there's this guy, here it is, and I'll tell you what, if it ended up being the real Batman, it literally would have made me really pissed, because (laughs) then it was like, thinking to myself, so you're telling me that, so now, not only is Batman fighting off thugs in Detective Comics, he's locked in Arkham at the same time, but he's also Jokerized, fighting Damien for the Joker. I mean, like, there would be way too many problems with that, but... My my thing is, I'm trying to figure out how Damien could not recognize that it wasn't his father. Yeah, me too. Now, I tried. I tried figuring out who this Toshiro Matsu is. No freaking idea. His name does not come up in any database that I that I know of, and I have no idea who the guy is. So I don't I don't know what that was a reference to, or if it was an actual reference to anything, or if it was just you know some here's some random name. But I just have to wonder, you know. People have, no matter how skilled of a fighter they are, they have a very specific pattern or, uh, not pattern, but um, they have a very specific, well, I guess it would just be style. They have a very specific style as to how they fight. And Damien, who has fought Batman numerous times and has trained with Batman, would know how he fights. So he could have figured out very quickly that this was not the real Bruce Wayne regardless of whether he was on Joker Talks or not. So, I mean, like, that was the one thing that was throwing me off. Like, so we're going to play this off as Damien really thinks this is Bruce Wayne. I thought we were trying to get across that Damien was this ridiculous um, super 10-year-old who, you know, is an, who, who could be an assassin if he wanted to be. But he can't even figure out that it's not really his father. And then the fact that he's whispering in the guy's ear, father this, father that. And I'm thinking, so this is an imposter who now realizes, oh, guess what? Even if I'm on Joker Toxin, I may or may not die. I probably will die. But hey, guess what? I know that, that, that this Robin is Batman's son. I, I don't know. That, that, that was my issue with it. As far as the characterization goes, which I know is what your question was, I thought Damien was played well as far as the actual, like the relationship between him and Batman. It was just the wrong Batman. I um I get what you mean. I was also kind of questioning why Robin wouldn't recognize his own or that it's not his own father. Um, my argument would be in the the heat of the moment, you know, seeing that, and uh, it is an extraordinary likeness. Um, he might not realize that. 
in regards to your comment about the fighting styles, I'm pretty sure, I mean, considering Batman's, like, advanced in, is it like 27 or there's so many, like, different forms of martial arts, I thought he kind of didn't have a style in a way, but. Well, I mean, he would still, somehow he would recognize if he's, okay, here, I, I understand what you're saying. You know, he's, he's got multiple different styles of fighting. He knows all these different types of martial arts and, and fighting techniques and things like that. So yes, it would, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't always use the same exact, he doesn't always use jujitsu. He doesn't always use karate. You know, he uses a variety of different things, but. If you've trained with somebody, you know how that person fights. How many times, well, I guess this is probably the worst example in the world to use, but how many times have we seen in TV shows where uh, someone will be a masked vigilante of some sort, regardless of who they are, and then someone fights that person and thinks to themselves, oh my god, I know who that is because I fought them before. And then you find out that they've actually fought them, you know, when they're not the masked person or the bad guy or the person wearing the ski mask or whatever, and they realize who it is because they know their fighting style. Of course, that's TV, and it's not the best option in the world. It's also been done in movies, which is, in some cases, probably even worse. But the reality is, if he's trained with them, he would have figured it. He would have known. I mean, I get the different style, but he would have known. It's just that that was a, that was a huge hole on... Peter Tomasi's part right there. Well, number one, I liked Damien's characterization in this in this particular book. Uh, you really see him, well, gee, fighting what he knows uh, he needs to do and sort of fighting his feelings. And I think that was the whole, um, I think that this is what ties to what Dustin is saying. Because I totally understand he probably should have known. I think that we do have to say that, yes, he was under the influence of a drug, and that's going to make everything a little bit cloudy. But And even the best mind, even Batman's a little bit messed up. We also have to take into consideration the fact that he's sort of been psychologically tortured um, for however long it's been because he had that maggot, all of those bugs, however long he was chained up in that sort of situation. And Joker... Um, Especially like in Batman Hush, if you think about like the big thing was sort of the war on on Batman's psyche and really messing him up that way. And this was all about attacking Damien in that manner as well, mentally and emotionally. And I think that he was so broken down that he was not seeing clearly what was right in front of his face. And I think... It's the same thing that Batman we had last episode where he's in the cave saying, no, I know Joker was never in here. I know he wasn't. When plainly, he probably was in the cave. So I think he's just being broken down and worn down. And I think that uh, it is believable that he's not seeing what is right in front of his face because all this stuff has been going on and sort of attacking his mind. So I totally understand what you're saying, but I think that it is believable because he's been in this sort of hardship here. Um, the other thing I, I did want to say about the art, I guess the difference between uh, Damien and Cassandra is the fact that uh, we needed that art for Cassandra because at that point she wasn't speaking and she was speaking with her fists and her moves and everything. And so for Damien uh, and, and this particular book, last issue was wonderful. I think that this issue was a little weaker than the previous one. 
And you just have to have a purpose, I think, for, for every little detail that you make. I do think that it was comical, uh, those couple panels where it was sort of like anime arms, like the fists were everywhere. Oh, yeah. You would always see. It sort of reminded me of something you would see on Teen Titans. Um, Oh, and the other thing that Dustin brought up was the fact that, you know, he uh, kept saying father, father. He's very open about it. Um, I think that this goes back to an argument that Dustin himself brought up uh, for Batman, Inc. I think it was number five when we went back to the, the, the future and uh, Batman 666. And the fact that Damien doesn't even wear a mask in that future. And Dustin said, you know, that really seems like Damien... Uh, something Damien would do, just sort of walking around with his mask off. And I think that this is just, I mean, he's just an open kind of kid. And I think that um, he's hes going to sidestep sort of the formalities of keeping secret, secret identities. And at least he's not calling him Bruce. But I think he is going to be more personalized and, and talk to him as, you know, father. Um, but, I mean, that's just my opinion on that. Personally, I don't think it's, it's uh, any... Really great, really special idea that Batman and Robin are father and son. I think that like that's sort of like an assumed idea that crooks might have. So I don't know if that really jeopardizes much of anything if some random Japanese dude knows about that. And he's, he's not. I think that's the least of his worries in the in the fight. So uh, I, I guess it's going to sort of suggest Dustin's point that it shows a lack of care on Damien's part. But I think at the end of the day, it's a little bit negligible. Uh, well, the one thing I have to say is. You know, Damien is a very open person, but I guess I, I, I guess I'm looking at that as an opportunity for someone to come across the secret easily because Damien is so open. So I mean, like, I, you know, Stella, you are right. You know, in in some senses, I didn't really factor in the Joker toxin as far as you know, clouding his judgment, and maybe he wasn't thinking about that. So you you bring up a good point with that. Um, so I I'm willing to concede on that element of my arguments, but as far as the father thing goes, yeah, you know, he is more of an open person, he is the type of person who's probably not going to wear a mask and stuff like that, like I said with Batman Incorporated, but I still, at this point, there's so many, because here's the thing, in the future, uh, the future possibility where Damien is Batman, it's only him, he's the only person, there's not anybody who's, he doesn't have Robin, he doesn't have other allies, it's basically like exactly how the Joker would want it, just there's just the Batman, and that's all there is. So it'd be, like, perfect if the Joker was around, you know, 20, 30 years later or whatever that future was. So the thing is, given the fact that Damien is such an open person, he doesn't have to worry about anybody going and attacking the, the you know, the Bat family. You know, he's basically opening the Bat family up to a possibility of an attack because he's so open about it and that is who he is and i'm not going to deny that that's who he is but i just i'm looking at that from a perspective of i just would love to see someone you know standing in alley when batman and robin are taking out a thug and hearing him say you know they're you know sitting it's you know like let's say it's a homeless guy and he sits there and hears robin say that was that was great father We, we made quick work of them and of course that's not something damien would say in that exact tone but he says something like that, and of course the homeless guy is now sitting there going, huh, huh, that's kind of weird. And then, you know, let's just hypothesize and say, you know, that turns into a story or something like that where this homeless person is now trying to figure out who exactly it could be. So, I mean, like, I don't know. It's just, 
you know, the whole Batman Incorporated thing and Bruce Wayne backing Batman Incorporated opened up so many different possibilities for an attack in the first place. And, you know, I'm sure it's all going to lead to some story sometime in the future revealing that someone has figured out who Batman is because of all this ridiculous stuff that has happened over the past couple of years, basically laying out who Batman could be. I'm actually kind of surprised we came up, came up with this discussion. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. All right, so Batman Robin number 16, I'm going to give a total of two and a half out of five Batarangs. Really? <laughs> two and a half? Two and a half. Okay. I thought it was right. Uh, I'll give it three and a half out of five Batarangs. I agree with Donovan. I guess I saw it as more than just a fight book because of Damien's characterization, and uh, I'm really starting to appreciate Patrick Gleason's art. So uh, three and a half out of five Batarangs for me. And I agree with uh, Joe and Donovan. 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Alright, so Batman Robin number 16 gets a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book. Batgirl number 16. Using feminine wiles to get what you want? Trading on your looks? Read a book, sister. That passive-aggressive number went out long ago. Chicks like you give women a bad name. Batgirl number 16. Friends, this will be longer than uh, Donovan's 10-second um, summary there. Just warn you. Uh, collision Part 3, Ceremony. Writer Gail Simone. Art from pages 1 through 10. Ed Benet's pencils on pages 11 through 20. Daniel Sampere. Ink, inks. Pages 11 through 20, Vicente Cifuentes, and colors for the whole darn issue, Ulysses Ariola. Interlude number one. Babs is sitting in a wheelchair speaking to a clinical psychologist, Dr. Andrea Latamendi. It seems Babs is having difficulty letting go of the past, uh, is behind in her physical therapy, and is depressed. She is also having vivid dreams, which usually ends with her choking Joker with her bare hands in the misfit-looking outfit that she wears back then. <laughs> Present day, at the church, as some clowns get emotional, Babs thinks over getting shot by the Joker and is still completely baffled by him wanting to marry her. Batgirl, the lamb of Joker's loins, tries to get give the priest strength in order to carry on the ceremony, and suddenly Joker pulls out a tiny little book. A self-help book, in fact. The Bat is king. He is the jester. And all the Bat Brats are dragging Batman down. Huh. Have we heard this before? I'm not sure. So Joker is going to free his Bat friend from all the leeches. And Batgirl will be his leverage. As he has a special spot for her in his basement. A box arrives and Joker pulls out a chainsaw. Oh, happy day. With which Lefty, a vet's assistant for just a mere semester, will take all of her limbs. This is a happy story, friends. Babs considers running for a moment, but her mother wouldn't make it, so she decides to take as many of the clowns down as possible. She considers uh, that she's up against a lot. Uh, even though she hasn't faced anything, she couldn't outthink or outpunch. <laughs> I wonder what book she's been reading these past 14 issues. <laughs> then in walks James Jr., and he comes into the church, double fist in some grenades. He tells Batgirl that Mrs. Gordon is safe, away from the skating rink, uh, and this gives Batgirl all the incentive she needs to really go after Joker and his circus of clowns. Act now. Think about whether it's safe trusting James later. She's done being afraid, and her fighting shows it. Outside the church, a scared Alicia is considering that her actions from a few months ago, namely letting James pick her up sketchily um, after last call, uh, was maybe not a smart idea. 
Joker thinks Batgirl may be crazier than he. James offers Joker a deal. A clown calls Uncle, and Batgirl ignores it and beats him down as she is fresh out of mercy. Ignoring the priest's frightened face as he stares at her, she goes after Joker once and for all and begins pushing the chainsaw ever closer to cleaving Joker's head. Unfortunately, James lied. Bab Sr. is not safe, and she, Batgirl, is about to get a whiff of chloroform. Sleep, little bat, sleep. James demands Bab Sr. to be let go. Joker says that wouldn't do since he needs an audience for the reception and asks about the grenade. James said that they were fake in order to get his attention, but this one's not, as he pulls the pin and lets it go, destroying the church and taking who knows how many people with him. Later, a foggy back roll awakens to a well-dressed Joker, saying that the engagement is off. But hey, at least there's a parting gift, as he begins to open a bloody serving dish to reveal to be concluded in Batman number 17. I'm afraid it's Alfred's head right there on the serving dish, actually. Spoilers! I know. Well, I don't know if that's a spoiler or not. I'm just afraid that it is. Okay, hey, question number one. Were you surprised by the part James played in this particular issue? Did you believe he was truly going to help Batgirl? And why did he have more of a desire to help his mother? And I remember asking this question before, and Joe brought up a really smart point that I think uh, he said that I believe James wants Batgirl for himself, right? So he doesn't want anyone else to touch her. And so I, I, I obviously believe that as well. But then it seems that he's more interested in helping his mother and Joker can have Batgirl for all he cares. So I was kind of surprised by this because I thought he was going to help her fully. And then he just sort of turned on a dime and did this. So what did you all think of uh, James in this particular issue? I didn't like it. <laughs> Um, I think that, like, the randomness of him kind of, like, helping Batgirl than not, than having his own goals, I I think it's sort of more Gail Simone, I don't want to say, I don't, ha- I hesitate to say not getting the character, because he's only been in one other story besides this, but I think it's sort of her misunderstanding what he was initially made out to be from Scott Snyder's run. I just, it, I'm the guy holding the two live grenades, I don't think that's really, like, the character. Uh, and we had 11 issues to kind of get to know him. Yeah, even, the, even though the first half of those were, uh, um, you know, him plant, sort of playing the nice guy. But I think it's just like, she kind of treats him as this, this, this wild card who can she kind of do anything with. And it almost comes off to me at least. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure Chris and Ed and Sean would, would disagree. But like, it almost comes off as though she's sort of making up as she goes along. I was sort of interested in the idea that he would listen to Alicia. When, when she's crying and like save back or whatever. But now it's just like he's like, he's basically being random by every page. And he says, well, those, those grenades, they weren't real, but this one is. And it's like, you know, am I supposed to care about that? I, 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 I don't know. I, I felt that it was kind of mishandled here. I, I had no investment. It's, he just seemed like a random bad guy, you know, with, with shades who you can't see his real eyes behind those shades that he's wearing at night for some reason. It just, well, it didn't even matter because he said flat out to the Joker, well, that's my mom. And, uh, I mean, so I mean, I'm just saying, like, he revealed himself. So it's like, what's the point of the shades other than? Oh yeah, no, I, I, worn they're shades not shades. Hat. They're just glasses. The, well, I mean, yeah, they're, they're, well, that's they're an glasses. artist issue then. Yeah, they're, they're glasses which you can't see behind his eyes. Well, no, but I think that was more um, Francisco Francavilla kind of introduced that. This is a stylistic choice. Um, yeah, but you also remember 
Francisco Francavella when he was doing it, there were shadows in in the entire part. Yeah, of what he was, yeah, doing. he was doing like a sort of. So I mean, like that's what I'm saying. Like that's of. an artist issue with this book. Yeah, yeah. Is that the fact that they've just decided? Oh, it's it's he's wearing sunglasses, like they're not, not normal glasses, they're like, they're like, because there's no shadows. Like his his face has clearly got light over it, and yet somehow his eyes are shaded as if he's wearing sunglasses. He's not wearing sunglasses, I know, but it's just. That's that. That's why I said by that. Obviously, that's an artist issue as as, as that goes. When but. Frank when Francisco Francavella did it, both he would have it in a moody way. I'm not. I'm not trying to make excuses. But he would have it in a moody way where both he and Jim Gordon would share the same, you know, spooky eyeglass looking thing. Here, it's like he's look. It looks like he's wearing shades. Even in that pa- that ridiculous looking panel where he like jumps out of the way as, after he throws uh the grenade to the Joker. It's like, you know, it's almost like he chose to wear glasses, you know, to obscure his eyes. And I know that's an, that's an artist thing, but it's an artist thing that comes off looking stupid to me. And it's reflective of how I think, I think, and some of them might disagree with this, that like, he's just sort of like this cipher. It's, it's almost like a cipher for another story, possibly potential that kind of pads out, that, that kind of pads out this story. I mean, may, maybe there is a, a legit reason why he's playing footsie with Batgirl, but. I, to me, it's, it's sort of like, it doesn't make a lot of sense right now, and I'm not invested in the cliches to keep me interested in what's going to come down in the future. It, it all just comes back to the fact that what Gail Simone is doing is she's, she's trying to create some kind of long story, and she's taking these bits and pieces and slowly trying to connect them. Like, we talked about this before with all of the other characters, how you know, all those villains, they, none of them were very good. And then suddenly, uh, the end of what issue was that? 14, I think. Issue 14, where. The good one? Uh, yeah, the end of Nightfall. Yeah, the end of Nightfall, yeah. where she basically, you know, all the villains are going to come together. And it was like, oh my God, well, that's cool because they can all work together. And it's like, but wait. They all suck by themselves. So why did I have to sit through all these issues leading up to the fact that we're just going to t- team them all up? It's the same thing with James Gordon Jr. It's like, why are we, why are we seeing him, you know, make these random appearances throughout the first, you know, 17 or 16 issues of the series only for him to be lurking in the shadows for another six issues before he comes into play as a main character? I mean, like, I'm not saying he's, He's not an important character to the book. I'm saying they're making him more important than he is right now because he is going to play some part of what is going to happen in the future. Why did we see, what was it, the first six issues where he was basically like driving around in a van, he picks up Alicia, he get, buys her a cat. Yep. I mean, like we're seeing like one page with him in it every single book. Why? It's obviously leading to something. And I'm sure it has to lead to something to do with this and, you know, this thing that's happening with Nightfall because he was involved with Nightfall when that was happening, making deals with her. I mean, it's like, I, I just don't get it. None of it makes any sense until it's like at the end and then it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But what a waste of time. Yeah, you don't enjoy the ride along the way. Yeah. Even the payoff's not that good. Not, not only that, but like Gordon Jr. here is like, uh, I'm gonna repeat this because it, it bears repeating. He's like this cookie cutter bad guy who's, he's not really doing much of anything besides, you know, just, I mean, here, you know, he knocks back her lot with chloroform like it's a Tintin comic. But it's, he's not really, he's just kind of showing up and like, like, like calling her on and says, you know, make a sandwich. And oh, gosh. It's, it's just, 
I, I, I don't want to be Mr. Negative here, but damn it. Oh, but this, please do, yeah, because it, it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. What do we see in the last issue? Him saying, I can't allow the Joker to kill Barbara. And now it's like, you know, so, nope. so what, so now he handed Barbara to Joker on a silver platter after he used chloroform on her because he's going to save his mom instead. How does, I mean, like the characterization just changed from one issue to the next. Why did he say last issue that he couldn't allow Joker to kill her? What was the point of that? And it was, it was interesting when he did that, when, when Alicia, uh, was basically crying and says, Oh, this crap happened. And he says, and he knew how, he knew what was going on. So, you know, that, that, that was interesting that he was cognizant of Batgirl's adventures and kind of played a part in it and interrupted the Joker's plans. But now it's like, you know, well, I have plans, but I, he's a filler in this, in this issue. Because at the end of the issue, he, he did not even need to be here. He was completely superfluous and Batgirl still gets knocked out and wakes up to the same image we're seeing on the other comics, which is like, that itself is not bad, but like James, James Jr. in of himself had no reason being in here besides basically being James Jr. Oh no, he's here. That means he's up to no good. It's like, you know, you gotta do way better than that. But, uh, I mean, Stella asked a question and, uh, I've yelled my thoughts. I'm interested to see what she thinks, if she thinks anything different. Do I think anything? No. I, I think that there are way better ways to start leaving little breadcrumbs and leading up to something bigger. And I think that it had been done. Uh, with Snyder's run, right? Because James popped in a little bit and it started crescendoing. He had, you know, the backup and then all of a sudden he had the full arc. And perhaps in a way, Gail Simone is using that um, and <laughs> thinking that she's doing a good job and doing it here. But it's, I, I don't know, it's not really working out. It, it just seems like he's Dobby that pops up everywhere. <laughs> Like in Harry Potter, and he's popping up, and he's somehow involved, and like six degrees separation with all these villains, and it just seems too much. Um, and it seems like after this, I mean, with the solicitations the way they are, that after death of the family, um, that there's going to be a real head-to-head between her and James. But I was just sort of taken aback by the fact that he came in, uh, grenades ablazing. And said all this. Of course, I was thinking to myself, well, back where we probably shouldn't trust him fully. But to see him turn around, say that, (laughs) say, you know, I'm going to take my mother out of the rink now. She's going to be fine. But what back girl there, I was just baffled as to why this would be. So I assume that he's going to kill his mother himself because he threatened her so many years ago uh, with that cat. But I just, exactly. but, but I, I just, I, I don't really understand what's, I don't know. I guess I never really understand what's going but on. The whole well. thing, it, the whole thing just doesn't make any sense. So yes, the only thing that would make any sense now is if he's going to kill his own mother. Yeah. If he doesn't kill his own mother, why is he saving her? Why is he, why is he saving her and leaving Batgirl in her place? God. After he said be, last yeah. issue that he wanted to deal with Batgirl yeah. and he didn't want anybody else to deal with Batgirl. Right. Like it, none of this makes any, is not cohesive at all. And like I am, I am, I've been talking about cohesiveness in all of these books. Mm-hmm. This book can't even be cohesive in its own series. I right? Maybe it's because... Just take all of the different instances with James Jr. over the past 16 issues. They, none of them make any sense other than he's there. None of them make any sense whatsoever. What is what is the purpose that he is uh, with Alicia, other than just the fact that he has he can maybe have an eagle eye on Barbara? But 
he doesn't need to be with Alicia to have an eagle eye on Barbara, as he's proven numerous times. So what's the point of having anything to do with this lady, this chick, who is just, you know, she's a throwaway character who's just there. Almost as bad as he is in all of these issues. Like, it was fine for Alicia to be introduced as, oh, this is going to be her roommate, and, oh, they're going to exchange Christmas gifts in (laughs) one issue, and, you know, blah, 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 but, you know... Other than that, there's no point of having the character, but it's almost as if we needed a reason for that that roommate to pop up in every issue, and it was because she was going to be linked to James Jr., which gives James Jr. a reason to pop up every single issue. But now Barbara's left the apartment and says, we'll never see each other again, Alicia, yo. And then, like, which, I mean, I I think we talked about in that issue that, you know, I think Barbara needs a supporting character that's not part of this crazy crap that grounds the character. But now it's she's become involved with James Jr. And now that she's out of Barbara's life, she might not be because she's, she has a cameo in this issue. But it sort of makes everything involved in this, like, you know, this Batgirl, this Batgirl business almost superfluous. Like, it's like the guy that was introduced. Was, it, was she issue one or issue two where she went on a date with her? Uh, oh, yeah. And he's mentioned guy. here, Gregor. He's mentioned obliquely in the uh, the first scene with the um, the doctor. And what was the point of that scene, by the way? I don't know. And I was thinking when I was recapping, because it starts off interlude one, and I'm like, why do you even name it that when there's no interlude two? I don't understand. <laughs> I, I don't understand that, and we've never gone back to that connection with the doctor, with the young daughter who is um, talking to Joker, and Joker said, you know, look at my book, and... Right, so I mean, like I don't know. There are threads. Uh, my, yeah. My, no, there there is one thing that the the name of like I I found this out online. The name of the psychiatrist that Barbara is seeing at the beginning of this issue is actually based off a real life psychiatrist who has been writing articles online about um, the the various comic characters and how they would actually you know withhold in the real world and things like that. Really, and Gail Simone found this person's articles and actually use that person's name and likeness in this issue, which I thought was kind of interesting and kind of and cool. And then threatens her daughter. Yeah. No, 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 not the, Ar- no, 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 not the, not the Arkham the one. one. That, that was last issue. I'm talking about the one in this issue where it's like oh, taking okay. place in the past where when Barbara's in the wheelchair. But like, what was the point of that entire scene other than just to say, just to prove for, what was it, four or five pages that Barbara hates the Joker? Well, didn't we already know that? Hasn't that the, been the only thing that she's been talking about consistently over the past 16 issues is that she hates the Joker for shooting her and putting her out of commission and now she's back to, you know, do what she loves to do because she's able to walk even though we don't know how she's able to walk because it's never been addressed. I mean, like, I just don't get it. And the thing is, I, I just have to say this. This is kind of off topic, but I was on iTunes the other day and I was reading um, some reviews that people left us for this specific podcast. And someone specifically stated, and I will, I, I, it's gonna be I, good, isn't it? I don't, I don't know who you are and I'm not trying to pick on you. So I won't even mention your name. I'll leave the, the listeners to go to iTunes and read your review. But I will say <laughs> that someone specifically made a point of saying, aren't you a Batman podcast? Why do you bash on the Bat books so much? I'll tell you exactly why we bash on the bad books. We've gotten this critique before. I thought we've gotten better. Well, this might be the same guy. It just <laughs> Clearly refreshed we my memory. <laughs> refresh my memory when I read it because I was looking for any new iTunes reviews. <laughs> and I read this and I was thinking to myself, I'll tell you exactly why we bash on the bad books. Because we want good bad books. We have a standard and unfortunately the standard is not met with some of these books. 
So we will be the first ones to call out if the standard is not met as far as what we want. I have no problem with that. And I will, I will go down as the person who, you know, berates the bat books every single episode if I have to, if they're crap, because I don't want to be spending my hard earned money on crap every single week. I want good books. And for the majority, I will say a good majority of the bad books are good books. And when there's a good book, we give the books good course, ratings. Yeah. But if the books suck, we are going to give them crap ratings and we're going to bash the hell out of them. And if that means we spend more time talking about that than we do the, the books that are actually good, I apologize for that because we should be talking about uh, the books that are good just as much as the books that are bad. But the reality is the bad books... We're, we're voicing our opinions because we are, we wholeheartedly as, and I can say this for every single person on this podcast, every single one of us wants the books that suck to be better. And if that means getting rid of the writers, if that means getting rid of the artists and getting new writers and new artists, by all means, please do it. If that means, you know, all these things that I bring up about editorial, if that means the editorial is not doing their job, get new editors. You know, there's been plenty of series out there who have had change-ups since the New 52 started, and some of them are better off. Maybe that's what they need to do with some of these other books, and I'm going to continue to harp about Batgirl until I either see an improvement or Gail Simone's off the book and I can harp about somebody else. Yeah, we, we always mention uh, – I'm oh, sorry, but as I say, we, we always mention – why we don't like things. It's not, you know, I, I've admitted that I don't care for Gail Simone at all as a writer, but we mentioned why. It's not because, well, Gail Simone wrote this issue so it automatically sucks, although you could, I could argue otherwise, but it's like the reason why we're not liking this issue is because there are superfluous reasons why certain characters are there and their, their characters' uh, goals and motivations are all over the map. I mean, we bash them. I, I think bashing is a, is a wrong pejorative of what we're doing. We're critiquing them harshly, but we're critiquing them at the same time because we're using, there are, like, like the way we critiqued, uh, the, the, the detect, detective comics, we said, you know, this is clearly an editorial thing where they, they forced layman to talk about death of the family. It wasn't so much layman's an idiot. It was sort of, you know, we can see what he's doing here and what was being behind the scenes. We can sort of see that, but we still critiqued it accordingly. We don't look at Batgirl and just say, well, we hate Gail Simone, so we do this. We do it because Gail Simone has very obvious and serious flaws to the writing, which we address because we have common sense. Also, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, I think one of the reasons we do it is to give you an idea of which books are good and which ones to read so that you don't waste your hard-earned money on buying crap like this. And exactly. I can tell you exactly why that therapist scene was in here, Dustin. It was to piss me off. <laughs> one of those stupid bits of dialogue in it where Barbara goes, oh, I'm such a good detective that I can see what you're writing by the way you move your pen. So you might want to think about typing. Even I could see what you're typing. I know what the keys are. I couldn't be able to read what you're writing. If you're typing something from the other side of the room and I see where your fingers are going, even I'm going to be able to pick that out. So that was stupid. Well, it's not just that. If she can, if she can actually read people's handwriting and read what they're writing, how is it that she's had so many problems over the past the 16 issues? <laughs> Sorry. I mean, like, here's the thing, okay? I get this feeling that Gail Simone is writing, and, and this is my honest opinion, she is trying to write a Batgirl who is Stephanie Brown, but uh. is Batgirl at the same, or is Barbara Gordon at the same time. So has the classic ideas of Barbara Gordon, and 
you know, ideas from Birds of Prey and her time as Oracle and things like that, but is trying to like do, you know, spin it in a way where it's similar to what we had with Stephanie Brown. That's why we saw the ridiculous roommate. That's why <laughs> James Gordon Jr. pops up in every single book. Because like the thing is, think about Batgirl with Stephanie Brown. That book was not just about her in the cowl. This book, there, it's like 95% of the time she is in the cowl. There's like one or two pages in the book where she's either getting out of the uniform, she's about to get in the uniform, or, you know... In the shower. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Mm. Or in the shower. Because I, I think it's not only that, it's just the fact that this is such a dark and depressing book where Stephanie Brown, Stephanie Brown, even though she had a crappy life, was, was a generally lighthearted or at least, you know, generally well-tempered title. I think that Gail Simone is trying to write Oracle as Batgirl and just not working at all because... When Barbara Gordon was Batgirl, she was more like uh, Stephanie Brown as Batgirl, but because of her personality and being a different person, it was different enough. But and I, and I mentioned this before, every single time it's like blood and guts, and Barbara Gordon doesn't really have those kind of adventures. I mean, I don't know if she did that all the time in Birds of Prey, but I doubt she did. I thought it was more of an espionage stuff. I don't think any of the Bat titles, except for one of the one or two of the Batman solo books, really had that. So it's like, I mean, the the, the second page is you know her. Strangling the Joker to death, which we got a ton of in before the New 52, believe me. So to me, it's sort of like a, a cognitive dissonance between trying to write a compelling story with a lot of as much and many dark themes as you can. And that's a surefire way to have a sucky story. My, my thing is this. You know, the, the idea of the roommate was to give it some sort of lighthearted feel. But it doesn't work at all because the character is not useful whatsoever. And really, the only lighthearted moment was when they had the, the Christmas gift exchange, even though the gifts were absolutely Gosh. stupid. Okay, that was the only part that actually made any sense. Okay, besides that, that character has had absolutely no part. How often do we see Barbara interacting with her father in this book? Nothing. And that's a, a thing that I think we, instead of Alicia, we should be having more. If, if you want to have an impact with James, it needs to be with all of the Gordons, right. not have this, like, midway character. And we've not seen uh, Jim Gordon whatsoever. And that's a, a relationship that really lost itself in the New 52 is between father and daughter. And that's probably one of the greatest shames, I think, that's been going on. But, you know, given us Alicia didn't give us a lighthearted moment. To me, it gave me a poor man's Peter Parker because you tried, I mean, Gail Simone came out saying, you know, she's got this roommate, she's got this career. We haven't really seen the roommate and her interactions except that when we do, they're really weird. We haven't seen her in this career. We, we don't see anything. I mean, uh, I don't know. You know, I'm sure that person was writing iTunes about me because I'm this Batgirl fan and I don't like Batgirl. But I hope that you listened a couple episodes ago when I had that sort of breakdown and I said how hard it is to give this a terrible grade. The fact that the matter is, and Donovan's completely correct, that, you know, it's it's dark, it's bloody, and I think of all the characters uh, that Batgirl should be more uplifting. And I fully believe that it's DC Editorial just making all of the Bat books uh negative because of some things that I know from a previous Batgirl run. Um, not negative, but dark. That they all need to be dark. And I think, I think that Batgirl... is a good word, though, actually. I, yeah, I, I don't know. So, I guess we should move on to the other point. Because um, we got it. But this sort of leads into it. I mean, what do you think of Batgirl's actions um, after she learns, quite falsely, of course, of her mother's safety? I mean, she really drops the kid gloves and goes to work. 
she's showing no mercy and she's really almost on the edge of killing the Joker. Um, and thinking about this, I mean, it's really at odds with the dialogue, I think, especially at the beginning where she's basically having trouble moving on. And then all of a sudden, um, all the action shows her quite to the opposite and lying that she was able to do this from issue number one. Lies. Uh, but what do you think about this? Just her really letting go. I think it's, I want, I want someone to explain to me what the, and I don't know if this is part of the script or if this is just an artistic decision. But why is it that for some odd reason, and it's not just in this issue with Ed Bennis, it's in past issues as well. Why is it that when Barbara is beating people up, she is always shattering something? <laughs> that's how strong she is. Did anybody notice that? Like she's like she, she throws her elbows into these guys' faces and smashing their 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 masks in their face, uh, smashing their teeth. Uh, blood's flying everywhere. I, I just don't get it. Because she's a kid's educator, that's why. Like, I'm not trying to sit there, I'm not trying, I don't want anybody to sit here and think that I don't think Barbara is a skilled fighter, but basically, if we look at just this specific series of Batgirl, she has, she has had situations where she has said that Batwoman is a better fighter. Mm-hmm. Batwoman, who has had training from the U.S. military and, you know, just a little bit more than you know, normal U.S. military training because her father, who is special forces, had trained her too. So she would have more than just a normal U.S. military person. But she stated that Batwoman had more training than she did. Number one. Number two, she had that situation where she said she was fighting with uh, Black Canary. You know, we had mm-hmm. that interaction with her and Black Canary. And uh, she then stated at that point that Black Canary was a better fighter than her too. Do we see Black Canary punching people in birds of prey and having her shatter people's teeth no no so i just don't to me it's it's like an ex, it's to the extreme one i'm not like i said i'm not trying to dismiss the fact that she is not a good fighter but i have a very very hard time believing that a and i know this is going to come across to some people in the, the wrong way so i'm hoping that stella will defend me but I have a hard time believing that a female with her stature is going to be able to shatter teeth the way that is being portrayed in this book. I don't think it's so much. I don't. I don't. No, I want Stella oh, to defend me or not to defend me. Um, I I would like to say that no, I do actually agree. Um, I, I don't think this. Yeah, this kind of fighting is going to come from somebody like Batman, in my opinion. Well, I mean, and we don't even and we don't even see Batman doing this in every no. issue either. So that's the thing. It's like she's she's ba- it's like they're they're like porcelain dolls that she is just smashing the hell I out mean, of yeah. in every single issue. I think it's over the top violence. I mean, it's going back to Donovan. There's blood on the gauntlets, like dripping down. I have never seen a Batgirl. That's I how think. they legitimize Barbara Gordon as Batgirl because she, because. <sighs> I, you know, I, 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 I had to say not to say this because I do like Babs as Batgirl, you know, on a, on a basic level. But there are times where it's hard for me to legitimize her as a wholly unique character because she is somebody in a Batman costume, uh, you know, proverbially. So I think what Gail Simone does is try to legitimize her back in this role and just have her beat people up, you know, and like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actually saying that they're, they're copying off of Cassandra Cain, who was a badass fighter, who didn't make it this violent, to be honest, ironically. But to me, it's sort of like, you know, either she's 
a little milksop or she's overcompensating and just tearing people apart. It's like, oh, you know, oh, you thought Babs Gordon was like either the girl in the wheelchair or, or the commissioner's daughter. No, she's badass now. And it's trying too hard. I mean, you can have a, you can have a really good fight that shows a lot of skill and violence without people's blood oozing out like it's, you know, freaking berserk. And I think, I honestly, I, I think I find it really childish. I, I don't, it's a, I think it's supposed to make us feel impressed by Barbara Gordon and think like, you know, take her more seriously because she's so, because she's quote unquote angry. And to me, it shows a real lack of understanding in the writing process of having a character like her because it's, it's almost as though she has, she's never read the character before. I mean, the whole, you know, mercy, sorry, I'm fresh out. Come on, this isn't Rambo. I mean, you know, you can have characters like spout up badass lines, but she does this. It's like whenever she gets into a fight, like in the third part of a story, she always does this. She either always like you know beats up the character like in like in grotesque or whatever, or you know, or it's just like she, or there's just another way this ends in like this horrible violence. And he's like, oh, the priest looks even more scared of me. Why? Because because. Like, 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 like the Joker didn't shoot her or whatever. Like, like we understand why she's angry. We understood it for twenty years because this is no. The reason the reason she makes the comments about the the priest proves the point even more. Exactly, because she beat the crap out of all the henchmen to the point where the priest is now sitting there like scared of her because of what she's done. Why? I mean, here's a question that I want everyone here to answer: What makes Barbara Gordon different than any other character in the book besides the fact that she or any other character in the Bat Family besides she's a female? Stella. Okay. Uh, what makes her different? Um, well, she should be intelligent. Um, my ideal. No, 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 no. Hold on. Let me ask, let me rephrase the question. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to fix this. Okay. <laughs> I want everyone here to tell me why Barbara Gordon in this Gail Simone Batgirl oh, okay. run is different than any other Batman character out there right now. Besides the fact that she's a female. Her parents aren't dead. Okay. Cricket, cricket, exactly. <laughs> her hair, her lovely hair, there, which you can collect. The, the, I mean, like, the, the reality is there's, she's basically a female version of every other character that's in the Bat books. And she doesn't have to be, Dan. That's she it. And that's it. It's like, so you, so, so, hey, great job, DC. You, you brought back the original Barbara, Barbara Gordon to, uh, you know, to be Batgirl because she's the most iconic Batgirl that you have, so you, that's what you that was your reasoning. So, what makes her what makes her iconic is her history, and you have basically reduced her history to nothing other than she's been shot by the Joker and she hates the Joker, and that's it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, well, well, she also has a father, which we never see, who who might just be Commissioner Gordon. Uh, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, I know we probably need to move on to the the fourth and final book. Um, if you think about Batman Hush and um, Lonely Place of Dying. And if you've read, um, I I will mention that just to give like another one, but Spider-Man, the Master Planner storyline, if anyone's read that, you see these characters go out of control for whatever reason. Um, Rage, grief, uh, they just sort of lose it a little bit. They're more reckless, but they're also more violent. Uh, and Hush, definitely, it's sort of like, I mean, he's basically, again, you know, 
attacked psychically, you know, mentally and emotionally. Lonely plays a dying. He just lost Jason, and he's sort of going out and coming back, really beaten up all the time. And <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. And Spider-Man, his aunt is really sick, and it's sort of his fault. And Doc Ock uh, just stole this this really important um, isotope that he really needs, and so he's going after him. So. Devil's Advocate, do you think that we could allow this level of violence and sort of her, what she's doing because, you know, she is going up against this ultimate sort of bad guy against her that sort of ruined her life and has been causing havoc for 20 years and always rem- being reminded of it for 16 issues? Could could we allow it in that case? I I would allow it. Except Don brought an excellent point where she's spouting off badass one-liners. If she was really that upset, she wouldn't have time to think of a quick one-liner. She'd just be beating the guy's face in. I think that like it's it's not illogical that she's she's this uh, uh, intense, but I feel that like what we did see before, and it's just not to me. It's just too generic of a writing to have a character freak out and beat everybody up. That 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 it doesn't make it special. You know, it doesn't and those. Examples you listed, there were there were specific character motivations. To me, it feels like a story beat. Like you know, oh, watch out, we have Batgirl now, we got a badass up here, and it doesn't feel like you know the reader should relate to Barbara Gordon being angry. You can you can say, well, Barbara Gordon's angry in the story, but I don't really feel that. I mean, whether it's the art or whether it's just like the storytelling, to me, it just feels like you know it's the fight scene part of the story, and maybe it's just me. I'm perfectly willing to understand that maybe it's just us having some sort of like irrational bias, but. We, I, I want to like this. I want to like this comic because I don't want. I'm so t- tired of bitching about it all the time. Personally, my th- my thing is this. Okay, we've seen over the last 16 issues, Barbara be super upset and keep bringing up the fact that the Joker shot her. Blah blah blah. And in my opinion, it is just the writer's way of reminding us that she was paralyzed, but they aren't telling us. They aren't ready to tell us how she became unparalyzed or how she was able to start walking again. Because quite honestly, there's. We, she, she's already said that she, you know, there's been a lot of time that has passed since she first was, uh, shot. Okay. So here's the thing. So she was seeing a shrink and whether the shrink helped or not, that's not really relevant. But why all of a sudden does she go from having dreams when she's in a wheelchair of killing the Joker to becoming Batgirl again? And like, it all stems from, okay, so the Joker shot her. And she lost her ability to walk, which, yes, would make a lot of people mad regardless of who shot who. It would make someone mad. If someone shot me and I couldn't walk, I'd be pretty pissed at the person who shot me. And I'm sure nobody would disagree with that statement. The reality is that if I was then be able to walk, I would not be as pissed about the fact that I was shot in the first place. Yes, I might have lost one, two, three years. We don't know how many years of our lives because of that situation. But being able to walk in that in that time frame, but I'm now able to walk. So why wouldn't I be happy about that? This character has not been happy about being able to walk at all. I, don't I think we, she well, has. She, I think we're getting into a dodgy area with this. I mean, I no, I have no experience of what it would be like to go through that. But I, I mean, they, neither does Gail Simone. So I, I get what you're saying. I mean, we haven't seen her happy, and even during the first few issues, when it wasn't explained how she could walk, it's still not really been properly explained. But even then, she was kind of saying like, "Oh yeah, I I couldn't walk, and now I can." But she was never like happy about it. 
Right. And the, and the other thing was, did we ever, maybe I'm just forgetting this, but did we ever get an explanation of why she decided to become Batgirl again? No, and that's my biggest problem. That's my biggest problem. It's like, you know, derper, 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 I can watch them automatically becoming Batgirl as opposed to all the character development we've seen as Oracle. And if she wasn't Oracle, what was she doing when she couldn't walk? Right. And I know, I know there's a lot, a lot of this gets off topic and I don't, I don't really want to like get into all of that. I'm just trying to say, if she was upset for not being able to walk and she held all this anger towards the Joker because, as it points out in this issue, because she was in a wheelchair, then when she was no longer in the wheelchair, she should have had some sort of less anger about it. She could still be angry about the situation and the fact that she lost those years that she, was, she wasn't able to walk, but she should be happy and content in the fact that she can walk again. And then the fact that she's, for whatever reason, decides to be Batgirl again, she should also be happy. Because if it's something that she wants to do, that she couldn't do, it would make her happy in some way. The character has not really been happy about the fact that she can walk, the fact that she can be Batgirl, and that she can, what we believe, do what she wants to do. So, if she, I mean, that's the thing, it's like, Okay, so she's able to do all this stuff that she was so upset that she couldn't do after she got shot, but yet the character is, is shown just as mad as when she was not able to walk. So what, what actually changed with her, the ability to walk other than she could be Batgirl and what, now she can use her anger to punch people and smash their teeth? I mean, it also she has a criminal psychologist degree. She has a roommate and her mom came back. But also, though, it also places a lot of value. Way to spend a year and a half. It also places a lot of value on just her walking because, again, she 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 gained so much when she was Oracle. She really did. And I'm not saying like you know like she's nothing without you know that wheelchair. But this book is illust- like basically. I, I, I'm not going to argue her emotional or in mental state because I, I like Joe. I'm not. I can't speak for that on a fictional, fictional or non-fictional level. But her anger places a lot of undue importance in those lost years because it, it assumes that she did nothing. And it also, people are saying that you can go, go back and read those Oracle stories, but it really, this really does rob the elegance and value of their stories as Oracle because it's like, you know, I don't think there's any intrinsic value of her as Batgirl now. You know, when she was Batgirl, sure, but like, there's a thing of par- character progression. And if you're going to have the Joker shooter just to give her anger, then you're basically filling a hole that that was that was pretty empty. Otherwise, if this is not the way you're going to play it, and this a year a year ago we were saying the same crap. Nothing's changed since then, which I think is the saddest part. I think we can assume that she was going to school at least because when she quit being Batgirl, which that's I think the issue with why did she take up the cow again when she quit being Batgirl before? Um, I think that's a big problem, but. Remember, she went to school and she was able to focus on it. So I think we can assume that she probably had a rough go of it, given this interlude one that has no interlude two. Uh, and she was having trouble getting past it. So I guess she was really doing nothing. But maybe she went back to school because she did come out. Issue one, she had her, her degree. So she was doing something, but it was an oracle. I, I don't know. There's there's too many problems. And I don't. we've already talked about this way longer than we probably should have. Well, so yeah. With... <laughs> With that, we'll probably end up having to need a special on this at some point. Maybe like a two-year recap oh. of the series only. Don't make me do that. 
Yeah. It, like, there's too many holes as far as the, the, the specific time from when she got shot to when she, issue number one of this new series. And they have not really answered any questions other than, okay, so she got, she got a degree and that's it. We know that she saw a psychiatrist now because of this interlude in this book, but what else do we Interlude have? number one. Nothing. There better be an interlude number two in the next issue. That's all I have to say. All right. Background number 16, I'm going to give a total of two out of five batterings. The only point is this is, is uh, Ed Bennis' art, because I really do think it's really nice when she has that fever dream of her strangling the Joker. But besides this, this is just, this, this really pissed me off. And um, to me, because like, I think of... Because of my age, when I think of Batgirl, most of the time, it's like the new new Batman Adventures Tara Strong one where, where her default design is her smiling. And mm-hmm. you compare it to like this, 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 you know, bloodthirsty <laughs> crazy woman. So I'll give us a one out of five batterings. I will be splitting the difference this time and giving it a 1.5. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to give it a 2.5 out of five. I, I think the, a positive thing at least we can see is that she is sort of overcoming all of the garbage that uh, she kept recounting to us for 15 issues and that she was able to. Um, but, of course, now she's trapped in a basement for whatever reason. So here we go. All right. So background number 16 gets a total of 1.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our last book, Batman number 16. You know, Bats, we've been doing this little runaround of ours for years. It's been loads of laughs. But the sad fact is, none of us are getting any younger. Written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Pullo. The uh, issue starts off pretty much right where the last issue ended with Batman inside of Arkham Asylum. He comes across a number of uh, people who are dressed as Batman and Joker dancing in the cells in Arkham Asylum. Uh, he finds out that these, he deduces that these people are actually, in fact, the guards who do not have families at home. Uh, so there was nothing that the Joker could hold against them, so he's just kept them inside of Arkham. Um, they are all standing in a pile of water, and the Joker informs Batman that if they stop dancing, he will hit a switch and send a current through the, uh, through the, the ground so that, uh, they all get electro- electrocuted. Uh, Batman shoots off an EMP pulse, uh, the backup power comes back on, and Joker says he's going to throw a switch, throws a switch, and as it turns out, Batman also threw out some little devices that absorbed all the water that was on the floor, leading to the guard's safety. Um, Batman has snuck off and is looking for Joker. He deduces that he's probably at the command center, but most likely at Jeremiah Arkham's personal quarters, which was designed as a second command center. Uh, as Batman starts going through the soft passageways where the staff would travel throughout the asylum, he comes across a horse who is running down the corridor engulfed in Great flames. Great panel, by the way. Um, we then continue on to where Batman looks down and sees uh, some flames. The lights turn on and, we are, and he is surrounded by a number of um, inmates of Arkham Asylum dressed in riot gear, and uh, one of them is on a horse, and Joker and Batman entices them to attack him as they all uh, charge. Uh, Batman, um, you know, takes a takes, takes a decent beating from the number of different inmates that he goes against, but ultimately he, in fact, takes them out one by one as the guard or as the inmate on the horse charges him. Batman 
swiftly punches the horse in the face, which somehow prompts the next panel to show Batman standing on top of the horse. <laughs> he knows uh, what's up. We then, we then see Batman walking into a room where there is a number of bodies strung together and tied together and stitched together by none other than the doll maker, showing some of the Joker's most famous scenes involving Batman. These would include the Laughing Fish, uh, the death of Jason Todd, um, I'm presuming the baby, the Joker holding the baby is a reference to No Man's mm-hmm. Land. Um, so as uh, we find this out, Batman rushes, knowing in through the inner monologue that the Joker is unprepared because Batman has... Uh, moved through Arkham Asylum and arrived at Arkham Asylum much sooner than the Joker anticipated, so he's not ready for him. So as he starts climbing the stairs on top of the horse, Mr. Freeze pops out and shoots the horse with his freeze gun and then bashes the horse's head with his gun, leading the horse to be obviously dead. Um, after Batman takes out the, or takes out Mr. Freeze, he runs into a underwear clad Commissioner Gordon holding a gun and it is revealed that it's actually Clayface in disguise. Batman shoots him with an EMP blast or a, I guess a, a taser blast or some sort that fries him, puts him out of commission. Uh, then he runs into the Scarecrow who after uh, shooting some gas is revealed that Batman's wearing a rebreather and sticks his fingers inside of Scarecrow's mouth. <laughs> As he proceeds up the stairs, he gets to the door, puts a bomb on front of the door, blows it up. Meanwhile, the Joker's saying uh, that they need to move stuff in front of the door because he's coming. As Batman tries to push open the door after he blows it, he can only glance inside as he's not fully inside. And inside the room, we see Penguin dressed as the Bishop. We see the Riddler. We see... Two-Face dressed with a uh, one of the wigs that you would see judges wear in the old time. And we also see uh, four people dressed in uh, Justice League costumes, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Superman, and Aquaman, and Joker, of course, with the jester. Of course. In the middle of the room is a chainsaw hooked up to some electrical cords stabbed inside of a rock. Uh, Joker proceeds to tell Batman through the crack in the door that the... That, you know, that his, his entire, his, his important court of his, uh, kingdom is here. The Bishop Penguin, his strategist, who keeps his mind sharp, the Riddler, and the one that shapes his laws, the Honorable Judge Mr. Dent. And then he introduces himself, and then he says, um, we could have had anyone, we could have gone to Metropolis, but we chose you, and because we chose you, um, you should be you should be you should be happy that we've chose you. So he then proceeds to in you know prove his point by having the person dressed in the Superman costume go up and try to remove the chainsaw from the rock only to get electrocuted. Then he proceeds to tell the Wonder Woman character that it's her turn. Uh, Batman eventually gets into the room. Um, a set of bars comes slamming down, separating him from the villains and the uh, people dressed in the Justice League costumes. Joker then proceeds to say, well, it's your turn, Wonder Woman. Pull pull the uh, chainsaw out. Batman throws a batarang, cuts the cord so that she cannot be electrocuted. Um, then, basically, uh, what ends up happening is Batman proceeds to say, um, well, I guess, I guess you've lost. And 
the th- three villains, not including the Joker, um, say, what's happening, Joker? Why, why does it seem as if Batman just won because we're locked inside this cage and he's out there and the police are on their way? Joker then proceeds to tell Batman to look at the magic mirrors on the wall, which are a series of monitors which feature um, bloody, battered and bloodied bodies of Nightwing, Batgirl, uh, Red Hood, Red Robin, and Robin, all on multiple different screens. As Batman succumbs to this, he the villains tell Joker, well, nice, nicely played, we didn't see that coming. And Joker says the only way you can save those, uh, save your, your family is by sitting in your throne, which is in fact an electric chair. He explains that he would have won if it wasn't for his family, trying to prove his point that his family is actually causing him to, uh, not be to the potential that he can be. So Batman sits down on the throne, Joker throws a switch, we see Batman being electrocuted, and that is the end of the main feature. <laughs> The backup shows Batman laying, or not laying, but sitting on the electric chair. Uh, this is obviously after he's already been electrocuted. Two-Face, Riddler, and Penguin are talking about they need to get out of Dodge before the police show up. And uh, Two-Face proceeds to say, I think we're going to shoot him one way or the other just to make sure that he's dead. Joker explains, nope, this is not your place. Um, he's... he's uh, he's part of a a plan that I have, and unfortunately, you're not invited. After they all start arguing with him one way or the other that they want to see this through and see what happens, um, Joker proceeds to lock them behind the cage doors yet again, and uh, Penguin offers the Riddler some money to find a way out. Suddenly, Riddler passes out. Joker proceeds to tell uh, the two remaining villains, Two-Face and Penguin, that he laced... Riddler's jacket that he gave him with some tranquilizers and that he, in fact, is going to leave them there to sit and not be involved in the final affair. He he then tells them, it's not your right to see what happens. It's not your right to help kill Batman. It's It has nothing to do with you whatsoever. So as Harvey pulls his gun on the Joker, he explain, Joker explains to Harvey that, in fact... Um, you know, you live by a very stupid idea that, uh, you know, there's a good things and bad things and you use a coin to decide, but there's, it's not just black and white. And, uh, if you think the gun is not trick, it's not a trick gun, just as if I tricked the Riddler with his, his outfit that I gave him, well then go ahead and pull the trigger. As, uh, Two-Face drops his gun, uh, Penguin says, listen, I'll, I'll give you millions of dollars to let me out of here. Just let me out. Joker explains, no, unfortunately, you're, uh, I have no use for money. He holds a small silver platter up and says, well, uh, I'll show you what, uh, is, uh, what's to come. I'll give you a little taste of what's, to, what's to come, but, uh, you might, it might not sit well with you. As he pulls up the thing, both, uh, Penguin and Two-Face have a, very disturbed look on their face and are saying, Oh Lord, you have got to be joking me. As Joker puts the silver platter on top of Batman's covered corpse and wheels him out of the room to be concluded. Alright, so Batman number 16. Well, I want to start off with saying, um, I saw this all over Twitter after this issue came out, uh, that Scott Snyder must have a very, very, very strong disliking of horses because we saw two horses killed in this issue. Um, I, I just had to say that. I, I, 
quite honestly, I, I understand they serve their purpose. We saw in the last issue in the backup the the horse being killed in front of the Riddler. Uh, you know, whatever. I, <laughs> I it, it was there because it falls in line with this whole you know medieval kingdom knight knights and king and jester and you know it falls in line with all of that and that's why the horses were there. I I mean, obviously the Joker is not one to care whether or not the horse lives or dies that he brings in Arkham Asylum, so I'm not really super concerned about the fact that they died. I mean, no horses were harmed at the end of writing of this story. Yeah, so I mean, whatever. Um, Mr. Freeze freezing the horse only to punch it and, you know, kill it. Again, whatever. It, to me, that really doesn't make that big of a difference. Alright, so that leads me to, I know that's not really my point, but that leads me to my actual, uh, couple topics. So the first thing I want to talk about is, um, it was revealed earlier that Penguin was, in fact, the, Bishop of Batman's Kingdom, as we saw in the backup two issues ago. Last issue we saw the Riddler was more of the, it wasn't said that he was the strategist of, or the, the strategist for Batman, but, um, it was revealed that he was also part of the main kingdom. And in this one we also have Two-Face. Um, it's almost as if Snyder has basically set which, which villains are the most important villains for Batman in this specific story because we see the Joker, Two-Face, Riddler, and Bishop at the top of the, the stairs, and we see Mr. Free, Scarecrow, and Clayface leading to those top-tier villains, hmm. and then we have the, uh, well, any other character that really didn't appear could have been presumed as part of the, uh, the I guess, the riot that's, as they were all dressed in the riot gear, attacking Batman could have been presumed as that. So I thought I want. So the first thing I want to talk about is your thoughts on whether or not the top four villains that were in the room with, or the top three villains that were in the room with Joker, are in fact deserving to be in that room, and if they are not deserving, who would you replace with? Them? That's an interesting point. Um, I agree with the placement uh, because I think originally because of the '60s show, the top, the main Batman villains were seen to be. Because of the movie Joker, Riddler, Penguin, and Catwoman. And obviously Catwoman has been a very different character in the past 20 or so years. Two-Face has been elevated ever since the animated series and the various movies. And I think that Two-Face is one of Batman's all-time best villains. So I can't really disagree. Um, I mean, to me, I think that uh, Snyder and both the Joker would have thought about Ra's al Ghul. But how would you contact, contact him, honestly? <laughs> yeah. uh, I think Freeze and Scarecrow... Are definitely like in the B. I hesitate to see B list, but you know, lower than the top. Um, Clayface as well, maybe. Poison Ivy should be there, but we we just saw her, so she's probably around somewhere else. Um, she's with Suicide Squad now. Is she really? Okay. Well, there's there's your excuse. Uh, let's. Gosh, I don't know. It's like Firefly. No. Uh. Calendar Man, I, this probably would be like the like the top tier. I mean, I would I would include Poison Ivy somehow, uh, maybe even Mad Hatter. Probably, actually, I would include Mad Hatter as well. But then again, you don't want to. You can only put so many villains in this issue. So by and large, I would I would probably agree with it. Yeah, I think at the very least they're the most iconic. Uh, the only no, it wasn't an issue I had, but the way Batman just kind of powerhouses through the. I, I guess the slightly lower tier villains on the way up the stairs. 
especially the way he just deals with Scarecrow really kind of puts Greg Hurwitz's the like four issue story arc to shame. Uh, no, I think I agree with the placement. I can't think of anyone. The only other villain that I sort of had in my head when uh, Dom was, you know, uh, saying the ones that he was thinking of was possibly Man Bat. But again, he's one of those characters that's kind of on the side of good more than bad. He's a bit of a two sided character. But I'd like to see him in the new 52 soon. Yeah. Besides the clones that Talia has working for her. What would Scarface have done? So, like, some of these villains wouldn't really oh, work. Oh, true. Yeah. And, I mean, I miss, you know, Cavalier and Killer Moth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that it, it was well chosen. I think that Harvey Dent definitely always needs to be um, up at the top there. Okay, so then my next thing I want to talk about is um, leading us to this ultimate finale of in Batman number 17. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you believe, based off of what Snyder presented in this issue, that the family does in fact hurt him? Ooh, um, clearly the Joker proves that, well, the Joker and Riddler, Penguin, and Two-Face would have all been stuck behind those bars. The police would have came and take them away, but then Joker throws in, well, hey, by the way, I've got your entire Bat family held, held hostage right now. So... The question is, does Joker actually prove his point in this issue? Ah, a good question. I, I, I really like that pa- that page where he shows him the, the TVs of uh of um all of all the all the sidekicks being taken down. I thought that was actually a really nice touch, and it made me question whether they were really going up against the Joker in those issues. Um, I don't remember when Batgirl got punched by the Joker, but never mind. Um, because like are all those happening? <laughs> it didn't happen. No, <laughs> it was in another timeline. Um, what was the question? Did the, did the side case bring him down? I don't know. You know, it depends because, and I mentioned this before, I don't really like the idea that Nightwing's his sidekick. You know, Nightwing should really be his own man. And I think that, like, if, if he's involved in a Batman plot, he's the one character that I think should be sort of like the wild card who Joker might not be. I don't have a problem with, like, how he's dealing in Nightwing because I think in Nightwing is actually really good, thanks to Kyle Higgins. But, um, if you're talking about, like, a Robin or Batgirl or the other adopted sons or you know if there was Sandra Kane, Sandra Brown we're not going to go into that it depends because I think this is this new 52 era of the Bat family is really sort of an assumed thing that's not really kind of taken upon itself in a while because the Bat family had, has had uh, I probably not to do this too much but like it's, that, it's had different alt- iterations you know it's kind of started with you know Batman and Robin and then Batman Robin Batgirl then like in the 90s it was like Batman Robin Nightwing Oracle Huntress. And then, like, right before this, it was sort of like Batman, Robin, Batgirl, um, spoiler, or, or, or Black Bat and Batgirl, and Damien, and it's, it's, it, because it sort of depends on what iteration you're talking about, because depending on the iteration, they kind of vary in how they help him, or, you know, how they assist him. Like, because, because they were so, they were fleshed out in the other, other, uh, books, I think currently, Nightwing and Batgirl in particular are kind of shown to be rather, not not as effectual com- uh, crime fighters as they used to be. Nightwing was a lot more of like you know a really top tier. He was on the Justice League. He was a lot more of a top tier. Doesn't really need any help, kind of superhero. And I think Kyle Higgins' run is is overall good, but it's kind of made Dick Grayson be sort of like a, a lower, a less experienced or a less effective character. So, in this interpretation, I might say possibly. Uh, and it's kind of weird because we're, we're also dealing with these characters with, with a lot of histories. I think 
in this story, that might be true at least in terms of like the current con- uh, the current uh, context of the, of the other titles. Generally, as if you're kind of asking as a blank statement, I would disagree because we've seen Tim Drake, Dick Grayson, and Barbara Gordon be their own people and be effective in other ways and not really need Batman. So, in general, I would say no. But for this story, I think that like it's been made with the last year to have been that way. Although I kind of disagree with how it's been that way in the first place. So, short answer, yes. Long answer, no. I think overall with what they're doing, you know, working uh, their own beats and everything, they're not dragging him down. Um, but how I was interpreting your question, Dustin, was just in this one panel and in this one issue, are they sort of pointing him down by the fact that, hey, they're captured and now he can't worry about himself. He's got to worry about what happens to all of them. Plus, wherever Alfred is in limbo, if his head's not on that platter. Um, and in this case, uh, yes, they are. They're doing exactly what Joker is saying because he, he, Batman is being pulled in all these different directions and he can't worry about himself and the task at hand. And I think that goes back to, well, only place of dying when he, like, threw out there, I am never going to have a partner ever again. This will never happen again. And this was exactly the reason why because, uh, the enemies may not know who you are, secret identity-wise, which other heroes have had issues with, but um, they know you work with Batman, and so they're going to uh, attack him through uh, sort of his, his minions and his cohorts. And so um, I, I guess it's the same way as, as Donovan answered, you know, in their own lives and what they're doing outside of this, yes, uh, they are working with him, but with you kind of... It's kind of sad the way the Bat family has sort of uh, disintegrated because it's not really a family as much anymore. But in this particular issue, they are pulling him down and, and making him vulnerable. I think um, Bat- Batman, in a way, especially on the way up to the Joker, shows his effectiveness as you know a solo crime fighter and that he doesn't need his family. But I think it's it's less about the Bat family and the more it's just compassion for anyone because I think if you'd seen any sort of just victim of the joke on that screen, he'd be upset by it. But, I mean, if it was just like a random family, you would have thought he'd just run off and try to find them or rescue them. But for this, he for some reason goes along with the Joker's plan. I mean, could, maybe I missed something. What exactly is the significance of the, the chair? Was Did the Joker just say, get in that and they'll be fine? Or? Yeah, he, I mean, he basically just told them the only way you can save them is to get in your throne. Okay. So it's like an electrocute you just see. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, which I'm sure it wasn't. A, I, I'm sure I'm sure it was just like enough to knock him out or something like that. But oh yeah. Also, we've seen in other issues, not Scott Snyder's run, but his his suit has capabilities to keep protect yeah, him from being electrocuted. So so that's hard to believe that that worked too, but. No, yeah, no, I have no problem with it. He's, he's he'll be alive. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that they tried to present it as if he was dead, but I'm just saying, like, the fact that he's wearing his cowl and it's on top of his cowl, electrocuting him. I have a hard time believing that his body would get any kind of electrocution because it's not actually touching him. Yeah. It's touching his suit, which absorbs that stuff. So. Yeah, I agree. But like I said, it's comics. I'll just run <laughs> with it for this specific purpose this time alone um okay so my my last thing that i want to talk about is kind of it's a combination it's like two questions in one uh i want 
to get everyone's prediction of what is under that silver platter that we've not only seen in this issue, but seen in other issues. And then the other aspect of it is, um, which I guess we should probably answer this one first. We can see throughout this entire issue that the Joker's face is visually decaying Mm -hmm. as the presence of the flies throughout the entire issue, leading us to believe that obviously the Joker's face is not going to last forever. Um, making me wonder what could possibly happen with the Joker's face or the Joker in general if, in fact, uh, his face is decaying. And, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I This is kind of like a tricked-out question because it's not like it's either going to be, well, he could get his face fixed or he's not going to have a face and he won't be that iconic character that we've seen over all these years. So I guess it's kind of like a one or two, one or one or the other kind of question. But um, th- this is the book. This book specifically has been focusing on the fact that it's been decaying over these issues, and I, and obviously I I feel as if we're almost being told that this that's leading to something. So I just want to get your thoughts on that as well as predictions for what's underneath the platter. I can't really say what is on the platter. It's not really uh, obvious, but I've had my theories. Uh, I think, I think the immediate theory, which I don't think is true because it's almost something that everybody could kind of come up with is, is Alfred's face. Like Bruce had that nightmare. It could be that. Um, I first saw this, uh, this stick when I was reading Batman and Robin because I think that's the first comic I read. They do that. And I, you know, obviously Batgirl was in there. I think that it's possible that it might be, um, judging from like the storytelling, like, like Dick and Barbara and Damien's face in there, which I, I hope it's not because damn. But I, I think that that'll be a, a, be a really cool twist, like, that he serves his psychic spaces on a platter, which, if that happens, I think the Batman, Batman would have, you know, that's the time where he kind of pulls the whole thing and snaps his back in half. But, um, it's either Alfred's face or, or the Bat family's faces, which both sound really grisly, but, uh, so it's probably, it's probably a face. I, I doubt it's much else. I, um, I hadn't thought of faces, to be honest, um, until Stella said it. Um, it would make sense, I guess, because of the whole, there's the whole bit about the serving and you need someone to serve and then, you know, it's being on like a, a serving platter. So Alfred, get that. I don't want that to be that. I was, I thought it was either going to be evidence of him being in the bat cave, that sort of thing. Maybe like, um, the masks of his psychic so that, you know, Joker really does know who they are. Um, or it would be something really kind of goofy. And that's why, like, when we get the reaction from Two Face and Penguin, they're like, what? Really? Are you kidding? Or are you joking? And it's not one of horror. It's one of just like, really? That's what you're trying to get in with? Which I would love if it ended up being something like that really twisted it, but it's, it's probably I, I don't I have no idea to be honest. It's probably not that just based off the fact that the entire <laughs> the, the entire story face. arc has been extremely <laughs> gruesome. As for the face, I think that's probably more of a stylistic choice. But it was it was cool. He's probably been hanging around in that zoo too long. And <laughs> <laughs> what if it's Batcow's face? On... Oh, no. It's back burgers. It's just like, oh, man. It's like a T-bone steak, but the T is like a little bat symbol. I am, see, I'm really concerned. You know, the obvious uh, answer may not always be the one. 
Um, but I think this happened with Hush, didn't it? You guys were covering that. The extremely and- obvious answer in that one. Um, but the fact that Alfred has not popped up since he's been um, kidnapped. Yeah, since he's been kidnapped, and he was on the actual tapestry, it really makes me worried and concerned. So, and remember that one time, uh, it was at the beginning of the New 52 and everyone's freaking out because we thought Alfred was a computer program like Jarvis in uh, the Iron Man movies. Oh, right. So what if that was like foreshadowing and it's Alfred, Alfred's gone and now he, but it's okay because he realized Barbara that she was going to make her way down into the cave and insert that computer program like in (laughs) Batman or Robin. Like a Batman or Robin. No, so he made a computer program of himself. <laughs> um, so I think that... If Snyder referenced Batman and Robin, the movie, in his series, I think he would, like, lose, <laughs> like, probably, like, 50% of all of his oh, street that's, credit. That, that's what's on the plaster. It's a copy of Batman and Robin. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but good point about it all, you know, deteriorating. Um. Uh, I could definitely tell that it was getting worse, and I always picked up on the flies. I just wonder, what do you do after you don't have a face? And I'm trying to think of other people that... You turn into Jane Doe. Oh, I get, yeah. yeah, I was trying to think of other people that didn't have... Like, I, I thought of Black Mask. We haven't really seen him at all in the new 52, uh, but I doubt he would become him. Except when he had but powers. Just, yeah. yeah he, well, he was in that one issue, what was that, uh, Detective Oh, yeah. Right. Very briefly. Yeah, during the Night of the Owls business. Yeah, but, I mean, he's going to need a new face, I think. Um, There was another another idea was that what if Joker dies? And I guess if in that case, if he's the death that happens in the family, then I guess he wouldn't need a face. But I don't know. Okay, so my idea is Mm -hmm. that the Joker will most likely end up getting caught and they're going to do some sort of plastic surgery to give him his face back. Um, but I think, I think it's going to turn to a different thing where it's, he's no longer going to have his grin or the, the grin is not going to be, you know, set into his face. It's going to, he's going to have to, he's going to go into having to wear like, you know, makeup on his face to actually make him appear to be the Joker because he'll, because obviously if they give him a new face, they're not going to give him white skin and a pre-made grin. Until he dunks himself back in ace chemicals. They're gonna do the whole like Keith Ledger makeup thing. Well, I'm I'm not saying that's that that's exactly what they're gonna do. I'm just saying that's a possibility of what they could do. You remember? Uh, I mean, like he and like Joe said, he could just dip himself back in these chemicals if he really wanted to. If it would actually have the same exact effect, who knows? But that's a possibility as well. So I mean, it's just something to think about. Um, as far as what's my my prediction for what's under the the uh, the plate. I honestly don't think it has anything to do with Alfred. Um, this is mustache. I, I don't think it. I, I mean, like the thing is, I don't think Snyder would kill Alfred or you know chop something off of Alfred. I was thinking about this earlier because I was like, well, maybe it's Alfred's hand or arm or something like that. And then I was thinking because like ultimately Bruce Wayne has all of this technology, he could just give him some cybernetic pro- or cybernetic prosthetic, and that would be the end of it, and no one would be no one would care anymore. They wouldn't even need to reference it anymore, and that would be an easy fix for something like that. But then I was like, but honestly, that's not really going to have like an effect. Um, if it was Alfred's head, I don't know why Riddler, Penguin, or Two Face would have any idea of why that is 
you know, if that was actually what was underneath the thing or if it was Alfred's face or something, I don't know why they would even know what it is because it's either going to come out that Joker really does know or it really doesn't know. Um, the Alfred aspect is really the thing that's going to lead us to believe why, you know, whether or not it's actually true. I'm really hoping that no matter what happens in the next issue, I'm really hoping that somehow we get some sort of conclusion of whether or not the Joker actually does know or he doesn't. And then I would love to see when it's revealed that he doesn't know how, well, it's not going to happen, but I can't wait till convention season when we can start farming people at the, uh, conventions to start asking questions about well why was this character involved if the joker really didn't know and why did this character why was raya in nightwing if joker had no idea who nightwing was and why was barbara's mother the one who was chosen for batgirl to have to deal with and you know what what about the whole anybody care to explain the whole jason todd situation and love to hear people's you know the writer's responses to those questions if it comes out the joker was just you know bluffing all along as batman has stated but it would be a huge twist if the Joker does know, and if he does know, then where do you go from there, too? So, I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't know what's under that, that, that thing I have. I haven't the foggiest idea, and I'm quite pleased that I don't know, and, you know, I've thought about many, many possibilities, but I've pretty much talked myself out of every single one of them. So I'm not even going to make an actual prediction, which I know some people are going to be like, you suck. <laughs> an actual like prediction. me! But, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm quite content in not knowing what's under that platter ahead of time because, you know, there's not very many stories where I can't see where they're going and, or at least can't come up with an idea of where they're going. And honestly, I don't know where they're going other than I just hope that they reveal one way or the other if the Joker actually does know the identities. If he does know the identities and it ties into whatever Snyder's got planned for 18 and 19, this two issue story arc before the Riddler stuff kicks off. And it ties back into the zero issue with the Red Hood gang. Um, that could be interesting. And it also leads me to believe that maybe there is something to that because that was, that happened before all this happened. So I, I don't know. Uh, needless to say, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to 17 and I will be reading 17 as soon as it is available. All right, so Batman number 16, I'm going to give a total of four and a half out of five batterings. Four out of five batterings. <laughs> I agree with Dustin, 4.5 out of five batterings. I will also agree with the main man, Mr. Dustin, and I do have to say, if you were lucky enough to get um, the multiple covers issue, that one cover with the uh, the flaming horse was awesome. I thought that was an amazing cover. All right, and over on the website, uh, Micah Evans, which is a new writer on the website, he actually reviewed it and gave it also four and a half out of five batterings. So that is going to give Batman number 16 a total of four and a half out of five batterings. That is all of our books. Let's throw it over to John with Bat Books for Beginners.
Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Back Books for Beginners. I am, once again, your host, John, and in this episode, we are going to be dealing with Birds of Prey, Old Friends, and New Enemies. This was written by Chuck Dixon and features art by Greg Land, and it was released between January 1999 and June 1999. It's the first six issues of the ongoing Birds of Prey series, something that is still running today. And it debuted at number 70 for issue number one, but by issue number six was way down table at 95 in the comic book pre-sales chart. It collects two stories, Long Time Gone and The Ravens, and these have both been released together in trade paperback form which is what this story is and it can be bought on amazon for 30 dollars or if you're feeling a little bit tighter it can be bought from dc comics directly for 17.95 so is this going to be any good or will this be like all the other birds of prey issues that i reviewed boring Let's find out as we delve into Birds of Prey, Old Friends, and New Enemies. Kind of late for a charity drop-off, isn't it, boys? We open with Black Canary screaming in fear, but it turns out that she was just given a computer. They discuss the benefits of it and why Oracle has to remain hidden. In response, Black Canary throws a dishcloth over the camera. It cuts to a jungle and two people running out of it towards a village, hoping that it will offer them help. However, they are intercepted by Hellhound, and he tells them that they knew the rules and the master is not happy. I am the master, and you will obey. They run for it, however, but are chased by Hellhound's dogs and killed. Diana is given instructions by Oracle to go to release a release Asia, a country that has fallen into civil war and is attracting the wrong kind of people. Black Canary arrives on Relasia and searches for clues from a drug dealer known as Jackie Pajamas. She breaks into his house and heads to a massive wall safe. Diana breaks in and discovers not only a vast collection of odds and ends, but also human body parts. They discover that helping Pajam is Jason Bard, former Private Eye and ex-boyfriend of Oracle's. However, Black Canary is caught by the guards and captured before she can escape. Jason Bard enters and begins to interrogate Black Canary. However, he tells her that he is trying to help her and they escape together. Jason expands that he is here looking for a missing family member. However, before they can leave, they are captured once again. Diana wakes up in a compound with several women, and she is then taken to Pajamas, who explains that it is a slave labour camp of the rich, who are kept alive because their families are paying to keep them like that. Black Canary seeks out Jason, and they try to escape again however, only to be discovered that he has been blinded. Meanwhile, Oracle uses Robin to try and help find the compound where Black Canary is being held. Whilst they search, Oracle gets the first demand for money from the kidnappers. Whilst this is happening, Diana and Jason escape from the camp, but are pursued by Hellhound, 
Black Canary defeats him, breaking his leg in the process. And they alert the Lee Asian army. And they turn up and rescue all the other captives. The next story opens with the Ravens attacking an army convoy of the Cobra Gang. It turns out that they have been hired to kill Cobra Prime. But it transpires that it is in fact all a test. And they are instead hired to try and get a mysterious object for him. Whilst this is happening, Black Canary is relaxing on holiday in Minnesota. She travels to a lakeside. But, as with all heroes, they're not allowed a vacation, and she is attacked by a giant monster. However, before it is able to eat her, it is chased off by a boy, his father. Black Canary contacts Oracle to tell her about the monster. Meanwhile, the ravens arrive at the lake to locate a satellite for Cobra, the mysterious object that they've been told they need to hunt down. But, as they surface, it appears that they've gone back in time, caused by the satellite. Black Canary returns to her cabin only to be attacked by two men who burst in to try and kill her. She easily dispatches them and discovers that they have been sent by Cobra. So Diana heads out to where the ravens were to search for the monster. She discovers the satellite and they find no record of the satellite ever crashing. However, before Black Canary can resurface, Cobra show up at the satellite. But before Cobra can rescue the satellite, the ravens return from the past and attack the guards. However, Diana attacks them as they are wanted for a huge number of crimes. So, taking out the ravens destroys her last hope of ever managing to stop Cobra, until fortunately the monster turns up and attacks the submarine, forcing Cobra to retreat. And the issue ends with the ravens discovering that they are trapped in the 16th century. You happy punching the bag or you want to go a few rounds with me? So, my thoughts on the whole thing. It's actually a really, really good start. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I felt that the first story was probably better than the second one, but not much difference, to be honest, between the two. I felt that the second one was slightly ludicrous in places, and there are a few problems that I will come to. I thought overall, through the entire thing, there was good characterisation, and I genuinely believed that these were characters and there was no sort of attempt to be too humorous or too clever or just be downright idiotic. Something that we've seen with a lot of the other Birds of Prey storylines and something that has plagued them before, such as in Birds of Prey Manhunt, which was the most ridiculous storyline I have ever read. I thought the art was brilliant in issues where there are a lot of females there can be a real temptation to do cheesecake and a heck of a lot of cheesecake and it can become really distracting and very very annoying um, and I tend to find that it does ruin stories quite quickly however I thought in this one the cheesecake was kept to a minimum, there were a couple of poses where you thought, I'm entirely sure someone's fine can do that but other than that, it was actually really, really drawn. It was drawn naturalistically, normally, and that's what I like in my comics. Whether other people agree or not, it depends, but I think it was a much better attempt by Greg Lands. 
it also helps to tell the story. It moves it along very, very well. And I didn't feel lost or confused or left wondering what was going on. It was very, very clear what was happening in each scene. And it was very interesting to look at. There's some really, really nice bits of artwork in here, especially when the ravens get back in time. The islands are drawn really, really well. And a lot of the stuff in there is very, very nice. That lot of added detail. Overall, the tail sort of bounces along very nicely. And I did like the ending to both. I thought that was well thought out, especially when the ravens discovered that it's they've been trapped in the 16th century however I did have a couple of issues with some of the choices I didn't really understand why Black Canary was attacking the ravens, I get that they're international criminals who wanted but they were quite clearly trying to help and once she knocked them out she really had no place to go, it was quite clear that they were trying to help because they were trying to cut Kate the cables on the satellite it was just really stupid and the fact that she had to rely on a monster as well to turn up and try and save her just was a little bit stretching it however I don't think that should mar your enjoyment you might scratch your head a little bit but I kind of let it pass just because I'd enjoyed the rest of the issue so much so overall I'm going to give this 4 out of 5 batarangs so that's my review of Birds of Prey Old Friends, New Enemies Next issue, we really crack on and we start the new year with a real big bang and we are dealing with Batman Cataclysm which is going to be huge So I'm going to leave you now and hand you back over to Dustin and the guys but thanks very much for listening and I'll see you all next that was bat books for beginners make sure you are checking out the next set of books for the next episode of bat books for beginners as well as the feed on itunes and the website for all of the bat books bat book for beginners episodes including basically everything from batman year one up to where john is currently at leading up to what we can hope to decipher from the new 52 as well Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. So with that, we're going to do a quicker uh, segment of DCU Spotlight, where we are going to give you uh, some quick suggestions of things to check out from the last couple months within the DC Universe. Um, I will go first. I'm going to suggest Scott Snyder's run on Swamp Thing. It is coming to a close because I believe his last issue is number 18. Um, So there's only a couple more issues. But uh, currently, it's... It's uh, a very interesting story. I don't want to go into too many details about it other than uh, recently Swamp Thing was in Gotham City and did have some ties to the Batman universe, which obviously somehow my DC Universe uh, spotlight uh, selections always end up relating back to the Batman universe. But needless to say, um, a couple issues ago, uh, Swamp Thing was in Gotham City and uh there's a giant tie-in, which I'm sure will tie into the suggestion that Joe will give you. Well, Dustin, I do have something to offer. <laughs> and that would be Animal Man! Animal Man! Which is also tying in with the rock world and all of that gory goodness. Written by Jeff Lemire with art by Steve Pugh and Timothy Green II and quite a few artists. 
I nominate uh, Justice League by jo- Jeff Johns and uh, illustrated by Ivan Reese. I believe it's how you pronounce his name. Uh, starting with issue 15, I believe. Uh, it's the beginning of the, um, I forget what the story's called, but it's the Aquaman crossover where they're being attacked by Ocean Master. Uh, the art is a big seller for this story. It's really good. Ivan Reese is a master. He's probably one of the best artists in mainstream comics, let alone DC right now. Um, Aquaman's at odds with the Justice League, as you know, there always are, because Jeff Johns is writing. And, um, from what I gather, it's a basic story where, you know, Ocean Master has beef with, uh, land dwellers and wants to beat them up. And Aquaman wants to handle it alone, but the Justice League want to, you know, uh, they want to, they want to handle it. They don't want to sleep to Aquaman. We have a reappearance by Tula, Aqua Girl, uh, in this interesting, uh, and it's in continuity. It also gets some um, shivin' with Superman and Wonder Woman, which is actually nice. I, I like seeing them develop that and not just leaving that as it is. And it's done in a way which I which I quite like. And um, I really enjoyed the first issue. I dug uh, I dug part two in issue sixteen. So uh, check out. Uh, and there's still the backups with uh, Shazam, which I don't really care for. But uh, the main story is good. So check out Justice League by Jeff Johns and Ivan Reese. Uh, I would have probably raised my hand for that. I will at, I will at least uh, amend that and say that you should – I think the backup is great. I know that some people are not enjoying the Shazam backup, but I think that it is – it's a great story that's been going on and really realistic. Just giving this boy um, this power, of course, he's going to do um, whatever he wants to do, and he's had a harsh life, so he's he's going to have fun with it. Um I, I'm going back and forth. I'll say really quickly that six and seven of World's Finest were actually pretty decent. Um, I, I, I don't really review this comic anymore because I don't enjoy it as much, but six and seven, uh, the issues where, uh, Damien pops up, uh, and it's just great. The, their interactions and sort of, uh, begrudgingly allowing the existence of one another. And then at the end, it's, um, a good team up, I think. Uh, so that was a great story. Wonder Woman, I think, is going to be my big, my big recommendation. Uh, it's just been great. I think we all were wondering about Wonder Woman, how it would be, but it's been consistently a great read. And now what is amazing and different is that the new gods, have a tie to sort of this mythology and that's how they're popping in. So the, the DC universe is ever expanding. And so Wonder Woman has given it a uh, one more, um, way of expansion. So I definitely recommend Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. All right. So those are suggestions for DC Spotlight. We're hoping to do this. We're hoping to do this again on a more monthly basis as we used to do in the past. And that actually leads me to my announcement. Um, so if you didn't get enough of us already with two comic casts a month, I have a interesting, uh, announcement for you. We are expanding the comic cast to three episodes a month. Um, actually starting, uh, well, I guess it would actually be the first month that would have three episodes will be February. Um, but the January books are the books that will actually be covering for the first month with three, uh, episodes. So what is going to be happening is, um, we've had numerous uh, comments and uh, suggestions in the past about how our episodes are too long and people um, I, I honestly I can't say that we've actually had very many of those complaints just what I asked that I believe that <laughs> because I, I should say we haven't had any of those complaints recently because I think ever since we changed the format of our discussions for our actual reviews of the books, 
I think people in general, and I hope that people will actually email and uh, leave messages on the uh, website about this, but I assume that because we haven't really heard any complaints about the length of the podcast, people have actually been enjoying this new format that we are we have been doing for a couple months now, so hopefully that's the case and that's why nobody's complaining, but the biggest reason of why we uh, are expanding to a third episode a month is because... Um, as you have heard over the last couple months, we have been cutting books back, you know, cutting books left and right. Um, it started with Birds of Prey and Red Hood and the Outlaws, and it's expanded to, uh, as I said last month, Batwoman, and I said that we would probably be cutting Talon. Uh, we cut Batman Beyond Unlimited. So the idea was that there are plenty of characters within the Batman universe, and uh, I was it was brought to my attention by a fellow staff member who is in fact on this podcast that we are in fact called the Batman universe, not the Batman podcast. Um, so because we're not called the Batman podcast, we shouldn't be just covering the Batman specific stuff, even though mostly that stuff is the stuff that directly ties into what's going on in continuity. We should be also covering all of the other stuff as well. So because of that, um, it came to my attention that we probably should be covering uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws and as well as Teen Titans because uh, for now, at least, Red uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws is Jason Todd's um, avenue to actually find out more about that character and Teen Titans is the avenue to find more out, find more out about uh, Tim Drake as those are the only books that those characters are really appearing in on a monthly basis um, in general. So... We uh, will be expanding to a third comic cast, which will not actually be a full episode, but more of like a half episode, which I'm sure that doesn't make any sense to anybody but myself. But basically, the idea is that um, at the end of the month, when you hear the episode, for example, episode 109 will have, um, the, you know, just as we did today, the normal news and uh, comic book reviews. And then episode 109.5 will actually be just reviews of all of the other books that we have recently cut from the normal lineup. Um, this overall will make all of the episodes fairly similar in length size as far as um, news and comics being on the two episodes of the month and the half episode only being reviews. It will, because there's a lot of books for that episode, um, it will actually probably even out. So uh, joining us for the half episode will be my joining myself, <laughs> I should say, is Ed Grouse, who is who you may have heard over on Backroll Oracle for the Backroll uh, Roundtable discussion last month. Um, he will be joining us for that. Also, a newcomer to the Batman universe, Mike Evans, who has been writing some reviews on the website, as I mentioned earlier, will be also joining us for that episode, or I should say those that's that series of episodes, and then the idea is to have one member of this comic cast um, kind of ro just ro like a rotation so that we can get some fresh thoughts about specific uh, sets of issues that are coming out, and that way it kind of frees um, people up to, you know, not have to necessarily read as many books as they are reading and get overwhelmed by the amount of books that they are reading. Um, so by having them come in and not necessarily knowing the history, but of the series on a month to month basis, gives them the ability to kind of give a fresh take on the individual issue itself. 
So as far as the lineup for books, the first episode of the month, which would this would be the first episode of the month, we will be covering, just as we covered today, Detective Comics, um, Batman Robin, Batgirl, and Batman. All right, so then the second episode of the month we will cover, and this will be obviously the other normal episode of the month, we will be covering Nightwing, um, we will be covering Batman the Dark Knight, Batman Incorporated, and Batman Beyond Unlimited, so we'll be bringing that back. On the half episode, or the .5 episode, we will be covering Batwing, Catwoman, Red Hood and the Outlaws, Teen Titans, Talon, Batwoman, and occasionally Suicide Squad if necessary, depending on what the actual storyline is, and if it involves a main Batman villain, such as some stories have involved Harley Quinn as the prominent part of the story arc. So um, that w- that is what we'll be covering. As far as some of the other books that involve Batman, such as Justice League and Catwoman's uh, abil- or upcoming appearances as part of the Justice League of America, uh, we're planning on having both of those books reviewed on a monthly basis on the website in a um, written form. Um, we're also looking to try to get video reviews of them as well, but we do have set people to do written reviews for those. We are always looking for more people to do written reviews of some of the other books that we aren't covering on the comic cast, including Legends of the Dark Knight, um, the, the, the one that I mentioned earlier, the digital first one that gets releases every Thursday, as well as, um, any of the other DC Universe books that cover anything related to the Batman Universe. So, for example, like Swamp Thing, like I mentioned earlier, when it involved Gotham City, as well as, um, Sometimes Ami Kami Girls, which is another mm. digital first series. Uh, Smallville season 11 also involves, has involved Batman a couple times. So those are released on a weekly basis. So we would love to find someone to review those. It wouldn't even need to be a very long review because those digital chapters are shorter than most comic issues. So if you're interested in reviewing anything on the website in video or written form, um, or know of someone who would be interested, or have seen video reviews online of people who already review some of these books that I've mentioned, send us an email and let us know at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net and let us know of your interest or somebody you know's interest. So hopefully this will please everyone as far as the people that we have uh, somewhat upset with cutting some of the books and uh, hopefully you don't get too sick of us getting three episodes a month Although I can't imagine that anybody would ever get sick of us. Ha. <laughs> All right. So with that, that is everything for this episode. I want to remind everybody to head over to the website for all the latest news related to not only the comics, but also movie, TV, merchandise, video game, and general news. Also, you can uh, leave us reviews on iTunes. Uh, those are always greatly appreciated, especially the ones that don't, you know, call us out for bail or bashing books that suck to begin with. Um, <laughs> I ha- you can also head over to the website on the actual podcast post on the website. You can leave comments there. Those are actually probably the best way to contact us, even more so than the actual podcast uh, email address that we have, um, as you can then interact with every member of the podcast staff instead of just interacting with one member who answers the emails. Um, and then in addition to that, you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news updates, and videos from the Batman universe. 
Make sure you check out all of our other podcasts that we have to offer. There's all kinds of stuff that is posted up. We have a number of specials that we have planned for the coming months, so be sure to check. Uh, if you're not subscribed to the specials feed, be sure to subscribe to it, so that way you're making sure you get the latest specials that we have to offer. And be sure to head over to Backhole Oracle for Stella's perspective on everything Barbara Gordon, good or bad. So with that, that's everything. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Jerry. And this is Stella. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Have a happy. Say goodbye to Donovan. He won't be here next month. (laughs) (laughs) You know something I don't? It's his head on the platter. (laughs) No! Let's talk about Birds of Prey. Stella? Oh, <laughs> you always throw it over to me, and I am unprepared for this. Okay, so... You know, I'm available with all kinds of ideas if you want to put me on the payroll. But anyway. I am too. Although your bat wings idea is probably not going to get you a job. <laughs> That's not my best idea. Next issue continued in Batman number 17. So... What? Wow. <laughs> that was your summary? To be honest, I can't think of anything that he could have put in extra. Yeah, yeah are you are you kidding me? Like, like, is there anything unawares. more? But you can feel free to disagree. Do you mean well, negligent I, uh, or n- negligible? Okay. I don't think that's a real word. Well, it is. I just didn't know if he meant negligent. No, I did not. <laughs> okay. All right. She's about to get in the uniform, or. You know, in the shower. Well, that's pretty much it. Yeah, mm. or in the shower. But There's I mean, not like for those. Ho, ho, ho. Never mind. That will be edited out. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, can I, can I say something that that won't be edited out? I'm gonna start writing single letters about every editorial mistake to DC. <laughs> Maybe it's uh, it's all gonna be a dream, and Batman will open the silver platter, and there'll just be a spinning top. That would be absolutely, oh, well, okay, spinning top, ha, 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 but, but that would be the worst ending to a story in the world. Not the spinning top, but just the fact that it's all a dream. That would be absolutely horrible. Derp, derp, inception, derp, derp. Uh, Dustin's right, and I agree. Four out of five better ranks. You said four or four? Four out of five. Because you don't agree. Then you don't agree. You don't agree. You lied. No, I, I, I try to <laughs> say that show. I agree. Damn you, Stella. <laughs> uh, it's I, over. I agree with Dustin and not Stella. Four out of five batterings. Can you agree, agree up to a me. point? I gave it four and a <laughs> half. Oh, 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 sorry. I agree with about 90% of what Dustin thinks. <laughs> okay. I don't agree. <laughs> you okay there? So with that... Do you have some indigestion? Yeah, I did. Um, and I'm going to suggest Scott Snyder's Swamp Thing Run. Um, yeah, I knew you were going to pick it. That's why I made sure I went first, because I always get screwed out of my <laughs> ideas. Um, raise your hand if you're, if you're not, if raise your hand if you're going to, uh, nominate Justice League. I'm raising my hand because that, 
Justice League currently by Jeff Johns and Ivan Reese. What? Wait a second. What the heck was you? <laughs> what? I thought that like I I I risked somebody. I guess I guess Johnson on the show. Which I forgot about. But like I mean, because I I always like choose some book and they would always say, "Damn you, you chose the book." But like, just in case Stella was going to nominate that. Well, then why would anybody else hold up their hands since we already did ours? Why don't you just say, Stella, are you doing Justice League? Whatever. Yeah, whatever's right. I don't You're know. You're so whips done. <laughs> <sighs> so let's try to start that again without the whole nominating <laughs> thing, okay? You're <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Oh, man. You're going to be fired, man. It's yeah. not me anymore on the chopping block. Are you serious? That was a two-hour, 20-minute podcast? Yeah, which is very hard to believe because... Uh, I swear that went for half an hour. I didn't go in the back row expecting that that much of a rant, but the the content brought it out in this. Have a nice day.